What's going on, U-Turn friends? We have a really special episode this morning. It's different. I wanted the introduction from me to you to be different because it just means so much that I finally have this episode together. I interviewed four leaders that I wanted to learn from in the Black Lives Matter movement, people who know so much about Black history, the myths we buy into about racism, uh, narcissism, the role of narcissism in racism. I also had a speechwriter from UPS, the only Black female speechwriter to write for the C-suite of a Fortune 500 company. I hate that I'm saying that. I wish that there were more. Uh, You know, After the Black Lives Matter movement, I realized that there was so much work that I had to do that everyone has to do to really get educated on what it looks like to be racist in today's world. It is so insidious and sneaky that I think sometimes we don't even realize that these quote unquote norms that we're buying into and operate from are not necessarily the way to keep operating. And I wanted to ask questions from four different leaders. So the first person you're going to hear from is Christina Blacken. She's the founder of a company called The New Quo, and she is brilliant at dismantling the top four myths that we all buy into that give us kind of a hall pass to think that we're not racist. The second interview, my absolute favorite interview in this episode is with April Harder. She is the founder of the Racism Recovery Center. She has helped hundreds of white professionals especially therapists, look at their own bias and dismantle their own racism or just start doing that anti-racist work so that they can kind of face themselves and start creating a better world, a more equal world, whatever that actually means. And then another leader that I had on the show was Brenda Stevenson. She is an incredible faculty member and a leader when it comes to teaching black history. You're going to learn so much from her just about what it looks like to be racist in today's world and what historical structures kept that going and what the history is behind them. And then, of course, you're going to learn from Janet Stovall. She is the speechwriter for UPS. She has so much to say about her own experiences. She's done a viral TED talk and she's proudly somebody who calls herself single-minded. I absolutely loved all four of these conversations. I've got to say uh, the second guest you'll hear from, April Harder, really blew my mind about narcissism and racism. There was so much I learned in that episode, not just about narcissism and racism, but about my own relationships in my life, whether they're black, white, brown, any color on the racial rainbow. So please tune in, take notes. I know this is a long episode, so take your time to get through it. And I'm so honored you're listening, learning with me. I can't say you're learning from me because I was really with you in these interviews, trying to ask questions to help educate myself. I had to overcome so much self-doubt and quote unquote white fragility so that you guys wouldn't judge me or think that I'm stupid as I'm doing this work. And it, it really was for me so important to be vulnerable in this way with you. So thanks again for listening. And now let's tune in to Christina Blacken on the myths that we buy into about racism and the ways we give ourselves a hall pass. Christina, uh, she's also the founder of The New Quo, which is a personal development, professional development company and consulting firm that teaches leaders to use narrative intelligence to achieve inclusive status quo breaking goals. Uh, So really inspiring. Christina, thank you so much for being here with me. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I feel like it's, I just want to name, like, I feel almost intimidated by how educated you are on this and how uneducated I am on it, you know? 
like I said to you before, like this is obviously not about me at all. So I'm staying focused on just uh, collecting information from you and using it to make a better impact in the world. Um, what inspired you to start your podcast and to speak up against racism in the way that you did? I thought it was so powerful listening to your show. Yeah, well, I definitely want to say that this is a moment in time for so many people to realize that it's okay to be at the starting place with some of this stuff. I made a funny tweet the other day that for some people, learning about systemic racism is like learning Santa Claus isn't real at 60, which is shocking. And and also, uh, it gives you the space to realize that some of this is conditioning because of schooling and the system that we're in. So as long as people are willing to learn and listen, that's the key. And I started my podcast because I was pretty frustrated with what was out there when it came to leadership, because we have really specific perceived conceptions of who can be a leader, who should be a leader, what they look like. And typically we assume that leaders means they need to be white, male and heterosexual. And then when I started looking for a podcast to listen to leadership expertise, that's what I found. And I kept thinking, well, there's so many interesting leadership lessons of wisdom from people from underrepresented groups because they've had to make something out of nothing and be ingenious and creative and to use adversity as a tool to figure out how to make new solutions to things. And so I started Sway Them in Color as creating a new narrative around leadership, interviewing people you don't typically see or hear from when it comes to speaking about leadership and creativity. So I've interviewed sex educators. I've interviewed a shaman about their leadership experience. And on that podcast recently, I talked about these five key myths around being a liberal person and what that means and if you get a oppression pass or not. And that joke really came from me speaking to my best friend about this. And we were kind of joking around how some of the most racist incidences we've had in our lives have been with liberal white people and how a lot of the time they're not even really cognizant of how they're doing it or what they're perpetuating themselves. So I was like, you don't get a pressure pass. It's not six flags. Like that's not how it works. And I wanted to sort of inform people how some of these myths are perpetuated and actually facilitate racism in different forms and in different ways. Yeah. So powerful. And and I I love the term oppression passes of six flags for racism and we totally got it covered and just get to go in <laughs> with you know collect what, what is it in monopoly like pasco and collect 200 right don't pasco <laughs> collect 200 dollars to get out of jail free card you know all those yeah. things and yeah. one, one thing i like to emphasize with this is the idea you know language is so important and we really struggle with speaking about race because we don't have enough language to catch up with where we are right now i think for most people in their minds they think racist and racism is somebody with a Ku Klux Klan hat on who's burning a cross on the lawn. And that is overt racism and actually detrimental. But there's so many steps below the iceberg that are covert racism that are subtle, which is belief, behavior, language, and systems that are also inherently racist and facilitate the crazy violence that we may see. That's the end point. That's the end point of certain sorts of practices and beliefs. So we can call it prejudice or bias, but I think that's what's important too, is it's really hard to have these conversations when people are so resistant to the labels and the language instead of actually unpacking their behavior. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm curious also for everybody to understand, like, I, I just had a guest on and we were talking about her experiences growing up with racism. And it's it's hard for me as a woman of privilege. You know, I'm, I'm white. I've never uh, and I don't know what that means as far as my relationship to the police, but I just see them as like a an institution that I call if there's a problem. Mm-hmm. And I think 
the way that they're held by so many in the Black community is completely different. And I would love to understand um, from your perspective and your upbringing what your experiences has been um, with racism and particularly with the police, because I know that they're such a topic right now and uh, so important for people to understand. Yeah, I would, and that definitely relates to one of the first key myths I talk about, the oppression passes, which is if I know or if I'm married to or friends with a black person, I'm not racist. And the reason why I bring that up in terms of the police is I've seen the institution of policing in and of itself has inherent cultures around racial profiling. Um, a lot of precincts actually teach how to quote unquote profile a criminal. And typically what they'll include in that training is how people look. They'll talk about skin tone. They'll talk about clothing and that usually is inherently stereotyped and racist in and of itself and i had an ex-boyfriend whose brother who's a black man is a police officer and it was really interesting because even though he was a black individual he was learning a lot of this sort of racist ideology about policing the community and he would say things about certain people in the town that he was in who were a bit more they were more poor may be seen as more criminal and it was interesting that he was able to dehumanize them so much because of the culture that he was in in terms of policing so i think people understanding that there's a long history with the police force and how it has been used against black communities in the past to police them, to, you know, violently keep them in line. The police have protected the Ku Klux Klan in the past. And so with that history, it, people don't understand that your experience with the police is inherently different than people of color's experiences, which is an over-policing of their communities and over-criminalization of their day-to-day activities. And the repercussions are far worse, either death or much longer and harsher sentences for really basic things. Um, As we've seen, there's lots of studies that have come out about disproportionate sentencing and that kind of thing. But I've had experiences with the police myself growing up, and I've talked about that on my podcast, where I've been pulled over unnecessarily and harassed by the police. In the house that I used to live in, in Ogden, Utah, we had a neighbor who would call the police on our house regularly, even if we weren't home. Like, we wouldn't even be in the house. And we would come home, and there'd be police there. And Mm. we'd be like, what is going on? Who broke in? And they'd say, oh, well, your neighbor reported noise disturbance. And so we wanted to come by. And we're like, do you realize no one's inside like no one was even home and so i think people knowing the history is so important and i call this historical amnesia if you don't understand the history of how particularly white individuals have used the police as a weapon when they feel uncomfortable or inconvenienced or to put people in their place then you won't understand why we're seeing what we're seeing now so i think it's important for people to read the history and understand that there are evidence and moments and documents about this stuff it's not like it's made up fables or myths like they're actual you know documents and information about the history of these sorts of things and how they've treated different communities very differently you know what i struggle with christina is that i i triple majored in college in government history and french and my entire history degree was devoted to studying the black slave trade that was like what i emphasized my schooling on and it's really interesting because even now with black lives matter i feel less educated than almost everybody else like to the i feel embarrassed you know it's like how have i invested 3 4 years of of my college degree into studying slavery and understanding black history but then somehow when black lives matter come up I understand the history as far as like what happened, but being able to ground it in what's going on right now, like even though I have the context of what happened in the 1800s, 1900s, not having the context of 
what's going on today? Because I think I was like a lot of white women who think to themselves, like, you know, not necessarily slavery was 200 years ago or anything like that, but more like, oh, we're, we're making progress. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. almost like women's rights, like we're making progress. And what I got out of Black Lives Matter was like, maybe we're not really, like maybe it's stuck and, and a broken system and it, it needs more than progress. It needs a rewrite, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, it's, it's interesting because whenever somebody says like, know the history, I'm like, I know the history and I feel just as like uneducated, weirdly. You know what I mean? Like it, mm-hmm. I don't know what to do with it in today's world. So as far as the movements that are going on right now, I know that the first myth that you talked about was, I know, I know where I'm married or I'm friends with a black person, so I'm not racist. So that was definitely me. My best friend, Barry is a black political activist in the Bahamas and he means the world to me. And I've always seen him as no different than me, but what I'm gathering from this movement is to see the color of people's skin, not to think that you're not being racist by not noticing. Can you kind of speak a little bit to that? For sure. Yeah, that's definitely, well, the first thing I wanted to hit touch on that you brought up, that's a really great point around education and context. I think for people to understand that even our history and our classes and predominant uh, white institutions have huge parts of information missing. And that's why it's important for people to go out and seek other sources and other scholars and points of view so you can get the full story. And also to realize that the compartmentalization of slavery is purposeful. I think people are like, oh, that's that thing in the past. It was so long ago. And they don't think about all of the current issues that have been part of that story from redlining and Jim Crow to the justice system and how that works and how it's right now treating people very differently. And there are live examples of this over and over again that we've seen in the last five years of people dying on video for little to nothing and people still rationalizing it away. And I think it does come from this post-color ideology, which is what you've hinted on. It's this idea that if we don't, the solution to racism is to pretend that we're all the same. And the issue with that is it's an erasure. It's sort of a, a lazy way of not having to deal with a racist history. And instead you're saying to that person, I accept you if you fit a white dominant cultural norm because that doesn't make me uncomfortable. But what would be better is for people to say, I see color and I don't judge you for it. And I am actually excited about our differences. I like that your hair is different. I like that your culture is different. I like that your food is different. I like that you speak differently. And that's something that I embrace and it's exciting and interesting versus us trying to all conform and be the same. And that's why racism isn't really about seeing color at all. It's how you respond to it. Cause it's sort of like going to somebody and seeing, going to them and like, I don't see eye color. I just see eyes. Like if they have blue eyes, they're like, well, my eyes are blue though. They'd be like, but I don't see color. I just see eyeballs. Like that's silly. It's not about seeing the color in the eyes. It's like, how do you respond to people with blue eyes? Do you judge them differently? Do you assume that they're stupider or more criminal or a threat because of their blue eyes? Or do you see those eyes and think, Oh, it's really interesting. I wonder why, um, she has those eyes and like what that means and how she shows up in the world, which is a very different sort of approach. So I think that's very important for people to remember is just because you interact with and engage with people of color or black people specifically, which I think is important to point out with this because this is primarily affecting the black community. What we're talking about with the black lives matter movement, 
it's it doesn't erase ideology ideology and belief is deeply ingrained and that happens through culture through family through media through entertainment through the policies that are enacted over and over again and if you're ingrained with that sort of thinking it doesn't just immediately go away because even you've interacted with people who are not like yourself i even have examples of that in my family i have family members who are in interracial marriages and my you know my black uncles specifically his wife his family has never met him because they don't like him because he's black and they've said that so even though they're married there's still very inherently racist things that they're dealing with that hasn't changed because of that marriage so i think people need to go past post-color ideology and really genuine belonging and belonging is not about conformity it's about acceptance and actual tolerance of difference yeah this is really powerful for me to hear you and you feel like an emotionally safe person for me to talk to which is a really nice feeling because (laughs) i feel like on social media it's very quick where there's like a lot of like white fragility or um i i I don't know it it feels like if i'm feeling something from this or if i'm overwhelmed or if i'm if i feel stupid you know that there's not necessarily I haven't felt safe to be like, I'm, I'm completely in the dark. I love that you brought up the term white fragility, which is actually really important for people to understand because the system that we live in right now centers white people all the time. It centers their feelings, it centers their experiences. And when people bring that up, it's sort of the idea of you are allowed and frankly human. So you're going to have lots of feelings about it and how you process those feelings is important, but not taking away the conversation or centering it on your feelings, which some people do. So for example, I've had people say, well, I didn't like that you, you know, shared this thing because it made me feel uncomfortable. And it's like, well, you know, that's part of the process. You're not going to be able to change and grow if you don't have some level of discomfort. And being black in America is uncomfortable every day. It's it's farther than uncomfortable. And so what I tell people is you get a right to process that and process that with people who are learning in the same pace as you those individuals who are also processing similar feelings or even in a journal or writing it down, but then snatching away the conversation to focus on your feelings is unproductive. And actually mm. it's part of racism in and of itself because it's sort of like, I have to be the center of this and this isn't going to go forward until I'm at the center. So I think that's important for people to understand. It's not saying you can't have feelings. It's how do you use those feelings and mm. are they weaponized and derailing mm. the conversation versus helping to be productive? I have this talk that I give called bodies in a room enough and it's the idea that just because you throw people of color into a company does not mean you have inclusion and it does not mean you have belonging in fact what usually happens is because the culture doesn't adapt and actually integrate them they leave and i I think that's a a knee-jerk reaction that's focused on ego and pr and that's yeah that's not what people want it's a fine balance and it's going to be messy and people are going to make mistakes along the way but as long as people keep in mind how do i genuinely build relationships and connections and and take away some of my habits and start creating inclusive habits the better like one one key example of this for instance like when i've been in workplaces i always notice very quickly the individuals who take take it upon themselves to get to know me they like reach out they say hey let's get a coffee let's go get lunch they're individuals who would never talk to me unless i make all the effort And sometimes that happens because, again, people are like, well, I'm kind of uncomfortable talking to people who are different than me. So it's unless they like do all the work, I'm not really going to make that give out the olive branch. So a lot of these all white spaces, people of color are expected to do a lot of the emotional labor of even making the connection. And I think changing that and saying, okay, you know, 
when people are coming in or they're new, just generally getting to know them and not even tokenizing them. It's like, I just want to get to know you as a person. And I normally wouldn't have thought about reaching out to do lunch or to have a conversation or go for a walk. But like, it's as simple as that to start. And a lot of people aren't even doing that. So sometimes it's overcomplicating it when it's like, no, your default might be to seek comfort. And instead, what happens if you do something new or kind of out there, what would come from that? And sort of doing these small experiments where people are bridging the divides or making the connection and then making sure that they're asking questions that allows that person to be a a whole person. So an example of it, for instance, is like, you know, if they want to get to know me, like, oh, where were you raised? Utah, it's interesting. How'd your family end up there? Instead of saying, oh, you're black, you must be from Brooklyn, right? Like making assumptions about me or jumping to conclusions, which happens. It sounds silly, but people do that. (laughs) So it's sort of like, how do you ask the right questions to just get to know somebody as the full picture and go out of your comfort zone so you're not always seeking people who are exactly like yourself? Mm -hmm. So it's good to ask. Yeah, no, totally. And I, I'm also just kind of, I'm, I'm thinking about like me as an author, like my book comes out in January and I'm editing it, finalizing it this week. And one of my friends that I'd mentioned to you earlier, Barry, I mentioned him in my book because he's my closest friend I met 10 years ago in grad school. And I struggled as a writer to be like, how do I describe him? And is it wrong for me to mention that he's black? in my book. Mm-hmm. And I know we were talking about erasing and not seeing the color of somebody's eyes. Um, but how, when it comes to identifying people, so let's say there was somebody at the market standing in front of standing in a certain spot you want to go. And your friend is like, where should I go stand? And you want to basically be like next to the black guy that mm-hmm. feels, I feel like a white person feels very much like they're on eggshells saying something, something like that. Mm. Um, is that appropriate? Like, I, I know I'm asking you very basic questions, but I think a lot of people listening don't know how to reference black people without being on eggshells somewhat as a result of Black Lives Matter wanting to show up educated. What would be yeah. your take on that? Well, these are good questions because these are things that people just probably don't know and haven't thought about. Um, yeah. So it's good to have a conversation. I think it depends on how you're identifying. The interesting thing about how people use the term black person it's usually been derogatory and weaponized and that's why it's now seen as not a good thing right so um so i think it depends it depends on context if you're saying oh there's um if you want to go to stand next to him there's a a black man who's like six two has a red shirt on that's different than saying black person in a weaponized way so i think the context matters you know people being so worried about tiptoeing it's more of well how can you just take the time and space to to just learn and to listen because even that even though for instance you did a lot of studying in school a lot of people don't even have that and I think now is the time to take a pause and to probably say nothing and just learn for a little while another thing that's coming up is like the racist family member so um you know I think everybody has uh, family all over, you know, if you have cousins and and then cousins of cousins and every now and again, there's like the distant cousin at like a weird family reunion that will just say something that's just so in poor taste Mm -hmm. and feels racist to me. One, I think if you label people, they get defensive. So it's more of, Hey, you're not comment made me uncomfortable. Why do you think that? Where did you learn that? Um, and just keep asking questions, it forces them to have a conversation that they may never have had before. And it could potentially change their mind. And I wouldn't even set out the goal 
of I've got to change their behavior right now. It's I have to let them know what I believe and what my values are because we're not having a real relationship if they don't know who I am. If you're hiding certain parts of yourself and your values, is that a genuine real connection? Or are you having sort of a pandering performative relationship with that person? And if you get to, if you have to respect their racist beliefs and views, they should at the minimum know what yours are and know where you stand. And a lot of the time what happens from that is people are forced to potentially recognize their own behavior and to have those conversations enough times that minds could potentially change. I've had people reach out to me and from some of the stuff I write and share, and they're like, man, this is the first time I thought about this. And thank you. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Or I've had family members who've said homophobic stuff and I'm like, Hey, it's not cool. Like, and now they know, and then makes them think and it makes them stop. Mm-hmm. So those conversations, although difficult are so important because your immediate circle for better or for worse has the most influence on you. And a lot of the time, the group think in these circles and people not having honest conversations facilitates the problems that we see. So that police officer that kneeled on George Floyd's neck, I bet you he said many problematic things at home. The fact that racism exists isn't necessarily opinion. It's just a fact if you look at numbers. And I'm sure you're the first person to be able to agree with that. But Mm -hmm. what I see happening is I love the the tip you gave me of being curious and being like, why'd you say that? And I know that if I come at it from againstness, that's not going to be productive. I'm not going to even get them to think. So coming at them from curious energy, like, Hey, what brought you to say that? What do you mean by that? I love what you're doing because you're making somebody else sit in the discomfort and take responsibility for comments that they're saying. There's so many different roles people can play. You can be an educator. You can share information. You can provide um, safety and security for people. You can use your body and show up at protests and protect black bodies. Like there's all these different roles people can play. And I think figuring out which ones make sense for you and your life and what you have and what risks you want to take is important. I don't know. It's like the anger inside of me when I hear it. Because <laughs> yeah. it's me angry. So I'm just like, well, fuck, I'm just going to give you all sorts of numbers. I'm going to outnumber you. And then you're going to have so much data that the facts are the facts. You know, I think and it's a I- fun exercise, to be honest. It's I've done that. I've done that online with people. And I'm like, I know you don't care, but I will send information to you. And so I do think it's important to have the data, but I also, I, I temper it with their goal isn't actually to learn. That's the part. That's the problem. It's really gaslighting. And and because I don't think people understand that a lot of racist habit and behavior is that it's minimization, it's Uh gaslighting, it's dismantling, it's a learned habit. You don't have to change things when you constantly invalidate the things around you. So until those habits are unlearned, it's hard for those people to to see a different point of view because they have a very staunch commitment to things staying the same. So kind of going into these myths, you said myth number one, if I know or I'm married to or friends with a black person, I'm not racist. So it's kind of like how I was not seeing the color and thinking I'm part of the solution because I'm not even counting the color. And that's what being a good citizen is. That's a myth. Um, the second myth I saw you wrote was systemic racism doesn't exist. Social outcomes are always from an individual effort or character flaw. Can you can you talk a little bit about that one? Absolutely. That's probably one of the biggest um, challenges to dismantling systemic racism is this belief that we live in a meritocracy and every single thing that you do is solely because of your own individual effort, which really erases a couple of things. One being that there are lots of invisible privileges that you can get based on a number of identities, your class, your race, your gender, your weight, are you skinny or heavy, your sexuality, your religion. And there are 
policies that have been put in place for many years that were part of that. And then there's also just inherent beliefs and behaviors that people in authority and gatekeepers use to get people to access to resources or not. So a great example of that is, you know, thinking about data and numbers, there was some research done around resumes and names. And there's this has been done for like the last 20 years, studying how people respond to perceived identities on resumes. And I think the data at the time, and this has probably been updated now, but if you had a quote-unquote black-sounding name, and there's lots of history around what that means and what those sound like, you were less likely to get a callback. I think it was two times less likely to get a callback, even though the resumes were identical in terms of the pedigrees and the uh, colleges attended and all of that. And if you had a quote-unquote white-sounding name like Michael, Tom, whatever, you were more likely to get a callback. So there's lots of systemic, which means practices, policies, and behaviors that change the outcomes for how people are experiencing the world. And I think this is hard for a lot of people to understand because it doesn't mean you haven't gone through things in your life, you haven't you know, face adversities. It just means you get invisible privileges that you don't even know about. People are less likely to see you as threatening. You're more likely to be given opportunities or to get a call back or to get a loan or to be able to buy a home or to be able to move to certain neighborhoods and not have the police called on you for no reason. I mean, there are all these things that are part of it. So I think it's important for people to realize that social outcomes are a combination of history, institution, policy, organizations, and also personal behavior. And once people can see that, then they can also begin to understand systemic racism and not just think, oh, we shouldn't have to worry about this. Like even with the police brutality conversations, there's so many people who are like, well, if they only complied, if they only complied, I'm like, people shouldn't die just because they don't comply. We have plenty of examples of, of white criminals on video not complying and doing pretty crazy things and not being killed for it. Um, one piece that I want to point to, you said myth number three. So for anybody taking notes, because I know there's plenty of U-turners that do, myth one is if I know I'm married to friends with a black person, I'm not racist. The second one it, myth is systemic racism doesn't exist. It's social outcomes are just, you know, from individual effort or character flaws. Myth number three, I want to talk about this one briefly. The only form of protest that's acceptable is peaceful protest. Um, what I want to remind everybody listening right now, as somebody who studied and got a degree in history, and I've been really quiet about my history degree because I feel like it puts me vulnerable for people thinking I know things. But one thing I do know is that peaceful and non-peaceful protest is the cornerstone of social transformation in mm -hmm. our history. Yep. And, and that anybody who is sitting here thinking that these protests are pointless, they are ignoring what history has shown us to be true. Um, I want everybody to remember that the looters loot and the protesters protest, and these are two separate people, and sometimes they all exist in one crowd. Myth number four, she said, I marginalize myself, whether you're gay, whether you're a minority, you can't possibly be racist because you're, quote unquote, one of them, you're, you're a minority in some way. Um, and then your fifth one, which is I identify as liberal, and for that reason, I just can't be racist. So as we're closing out, Christina, which I could really talk to you for a, such a long time, um, what do you want everybody to know or what can you recommend to anybody or what, what could I have asked you perhaps that you would want everybody to think about? I definitely want people to think about the self-examination and self-reflection I brought up earlier. It's the biggest step that people need to take. A lot of people's responses, and I totally understand why they do this, is external. So we're focusing on the bad actors and the people with the MAGA hats and the racist politicians, and that's important, and we definitely need to dismantle those. But I think starting within and really 
examining your own behaviors is so important because that's what you have the most control over. And if every individual did that, if they showed up doing the reading, doing the research, thinking through their own beliefs and behaviors and ideologies and shifting them, there would be a seismic shift. We'd have a huge, massive shift. And this is the time to do it because we have a little bit more space. I'm not saying, you know, we have a pandemic still. COVID-19 is still alive and well, which we also need to consider. Um, So I know people are dealing with lots of different tragedies and stresses at all different levels. But because we're inside for probably off and on for the foreseeable future, at least in the short term, taking some of that space and time to really think through what are my values? What do I believe? If I really am interested in equality, What are the ways that I can actually act that value out in practice? Does that look like me changing who I read and who I follow and, and what I consume, like even consuming black thought, you know, that's not a default. If you think about people's worlds, they consume all white television, all white authors, all white music, all white. So it's like changing even your frame of just engaging with different thought, engaging with um, different perspectives and reflecting on your own values and beliefs and behaviors and starting to shift the ones that may not be a fit with your values is the most powerful thing you can do right now. And I encourage every person to do that because without that work, we're not going to change anything. The final question I see when I look at your Instagram that your color, your skin tone isn't super black. And I want to speak to that. How do you hold your color, like the actual color of blackness on the spectrum as, as far as it goes in this racial divide? that we're facing right now. Um, Do you find that it's creating a different lens? Uh, What's your opinion on it? Colorism is definitely part of the conversation. And actually, somebody brought up a Twitter thread the other day about this, how dark-skinned women are the most discriminated against and left behind group in the country, which is totally true because they're dealing with misogyny as well as racism and also the colorism in lots of communities of darker skin is seen as less attractive and more threatening because of the history that we have in this country. And so I think it's important. I always say when people are talking about that, that that's why I recognize even earlier in this conversation as a light-skinned woman, there are aspects of that that I have had benefits from. Is solely because I look a certain way or I fit a certain dominant norm that has been seen as the the right conformity norm. And so that's important for people to recognize, which is, you know, we all have different various levels of privilege. We have different levels of oppression. And when someone else says from their lived experience, hey, I've had this experience because of this part of my identity, I don't invalidate it. I don't tell dark-skinned women, well, I've been you know, discriminated against, the police have been caught on me. Yeah, that's true. But I haven't experienced some of the things they have because mm-hmm. I don't have that same skin color. I have darker-skinned people in my family. And one of the biggest things that my immediate family really tried to teach was to not have colorism or differentiators between us or think someone's better because of lighter skin. And that's because they had experienced a lot of negativity around that in the past, which is used as a survival tactic by some people in in various marginalized communities. I mean, every from the Latino community to the Asian community, there is a, a striving for whiteness for protection. And I think that that, it, that has its place in history, but it's not necessarily a good thing. And so I grew up in a family where uh, we didn't, I didn't put down my cousins because they had darker skin and we didn't talk about each other's colors. And then I saw and experienced that in other places outside of my family and could see 
that ideology is deeply embedded in a lot of people's families. So I think it's important that the conversation happens because it is, it's just another aspect of racist ideology. You're taught that black is anti-black. It's anti-black to not like certain curl patterns and textures and nose sizes and lip thickness and skin pigments. And if we can kind of decolonize our brains and start to open up our minds, we can have better conversations. I just could go so far. Um, but I want to end this episode for anybody listening, um, with a quote from Frederick Douglass, you know, American social reformer, abolitionist in the 1800s. I remember reading plenty about him in history class and I'll never forget what he said. He said, I'll never judge a man by, um, the height to which he's risen, but rather from the depths from which he's come. And I think it is so easy to look at that Harvard graduate who is white and think to yourself, they are, they worked just as hard as that Harvard graduate that's black. And maybe sometimes they did, but we do live in a society right now where the black history, if you look into it, indicates that that black person worked and was up against systems that are so embedded in our government that it's almost like the air you breathe. So I just, I'm so grateful, Christina, that you're on and that you don't sound like you're judging me. I hope everybody listening isn't, but I guess that's, that's probably some level of white fragility making this about me. So I'm trying not to do that. Um, thank you so much, Christina. You're just, you're such a gift to have on here and I can't wait for everybody to listen to this. Yeah. Thank you for taking the space and time. And I hope somebody gets something out of this conversation and learn something new. Cause that's what we got to do. This is the time to do it, learn and grow and continue to have conversations. Yeah. And where can everybody follow you and learn more from you? They can follow me on my website at thenewquo.com. They can also follow me on Instagram, which is just my full name at Christina Blacken. And if they're on Facebook, they can just go to backslash the new quo and they can see my Facebook page. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. U-Turners, I have a quick but important interruption here. I really want to acknowledge that during these uncertain times, we have got to focus on upping our immunity and staying well. If your physical body is limited, it's no secret that it gets really tough to be creative and live your purpose. And for a while, I felt a lot of fear that I or somebody I loved would catch COVID-19. And now I realize it is really time for all of us to shift our focus onto simply becoming as healthy as possible possible so that we're not impacted by anything that's floating in the air. And that is why I was so inspired to contact Organifi because I am really obsessed with their green juice product and their protein in the mornings and really just all their products. So I'm really touchy about promoting things to you and I can say with a full heart that their green juice is the secret sauce to my afternoon slump. So all you got to do with their green juice powder is add water to it. It has 11 superfoods in it, everything from ashwagandha, which is used in Ayurvedic medicine in India to Moringa, which is an herb that keeps your skin glowing and detoxifies your body. It's organic. I just love their green juice so much. I asked them to give me a discount code for all their products that you could weave them into your daily routine too and upgrade your health. So just head on over to Organifi.com backslash U-Turn. That's spelled O-R-G 
A-N-I-F-I.com backslash Y-O-U-T-U-R-N. So make sure you enter your U-turn code at the checkout on their website so you can get that 15% off. I am so obsessed with their products. I can't wait to hear how it goes for you. Now back into our episode. Hey friends, it's Ash here as per usual, and I have April Dawn Harder on the show. She's an LCSW. She's the founder and clinical director of the Racism Recovery Center. She graduated from University of Houston, Graduate College of Social Work, 2008, was awarded the Martin Luther King Jr. Award from the GCSW Student Association upon graduating, and she was employed as a medical social worker from 2008-2016. She's been doing the Racism Recovery Center as a grassroots movement. She's based in Denver, and I just am so excited to ask her so many questions about the root and the relationship between racism and narcissism, and um, also all of the for lack of a better term, I think pressure on the white community as well. Um, I think that some people are inspired. Other people just feel a sense of pressure and they're performing um, as an ally, whether they actually are or they're not. And so I just have so many questions for April about the relationship between racism and narcissism. Um, April, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious what, I mean, obviously there's something that has to be deep in your heart that motivated you to create the racism recovery center. Like, was there a certain event or something that happened that made you think like, this is the thing I need to create now? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, yes and no, it, it's complicated. <laughs> it evolves, you know, so it's not like one day poof, I wake up and, and, Oh, let's create the racism recovery center. But it's just a series of aha moments. I think that all science and when you're studying human beings, it evolves, you know, theories evolve, approaches evolve. And so really the racism recovery center is really uh, the result of an evolution of the work that I've done since the spring of 2018, when I first started coaching white psychotherapists, actually. Mm, So interesting. Okay. And what did you see when you were coaching them as far as like implicit bias or narcissism? Were you seeing anything that was flying or impeding their ability to properly practice in the way that you see fit? Definitely. Um, What I saw was defense mechanisms, right? And at the time, I didn't understand where they were emanating at the time, but I knew that that, that they had defense mechanisms. And uh, subsequently, after I worked with many of them, I created what I call the racist signature theory, which is a psychological theory um, rooted in understanding racist defense mechanisms. And there's seven of them. And it's denial, intellectualization, saviorism, perfectionism, projection, the rejection of whiteness, and leadership. And those are the seven core racist defense mechanisms. Oh, so number one is denial. Number two is intellectualization. Uh-huh. Number three is saviorism. Four is perfectionism. Mm-hmm. Five is projection. And I want to make this clear that projection means basically the persecution of other white people. Mm-hmm. So it's like a distraction to actually seeing one's ra- one's racism. It's a defense. Mm-hmm. Um, then we have the racist rejection of whiteness. A good example of that that's very popular is Rachel Dolezal. Mm-hmm. Um, she definitely literally rejected her whiteness and uh, pretended to be a black woman, right? Mm-hmm. 
And then we have leadership. And this is when we have people like uh, racist leadership means that um, a white person hasn't recovered from their racism, but they then engage in anti-racism um, or, you know, any type of uh, race-related social justice activism leadership to try to help other white people in their racism. But they themselves uh, haven't been able to stop their addiction to POC. Um, two examples that I can think of uh, at the top of my head are uh, Jane Elliott and also uh, who wrote White Fidelity, Robin DiAngelo. Those two women literally will sit there and say, I can't stop my racism because it's a lifetime of work and I just need to keep on bashing white people. You know, And I'm just sitting there like, that's contradictory and, and that doesn't work. So that's essentially from my lens in racism recovery you haven't ended your racism. You, you haven't been able to maintain sobriety, but now you're trying to lead other people who are addicted to exploiting POC. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's, it's like, um, you haven't recovered and now you're going to try to lead people who are clearly haven't recovered either. So it just, that's a lot of the time why that's ineffective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I also, I don't know, just kind of like looking at these seven things, like, can we walk through how these tend to look? And, and also I would love just your feedback on like where you kind of realize, cause I, I actually have not heard the term narcissism, even though it's so obvious to go with racism, where did you start to think like there is a narcissism to racism and, um, and how can we explain that picture for people listening? Um, you know, I, I really, from the very beginning, saw that narcissism was an issue, but I, I really didn't, how can I say, my work originally, I didn't call it racism recovery, okay? I actually used to call it anti-racism coaching and anti-racism therapy because I really, you know, you know, Ash, I really didn't know that I was creating something new and I just thought, I'll just label it what everybody else does, right? I was like, okay. Yeah. Um, and so, but really I'm not, and none of the, my work is anti-racism. Um, technically, uh, it's not part of the pedagogy of anti-racism. It, it really isn't. I mean, the effect can certainly be very anti-racist, but it, but the actual body of knowledge is not like specifically anti, like anti-racism pedagogy. Mm -hmm. And I knew that narcissism wasn't, an, was an issue from the beginning, but I, couldn't quite piecemeal it all together. And it really has taken me two years to get to the point where I actually straight up started treating white people for their racism, uh, May the 1st, 2020. Uh, because for two years, I didn't feel comfortable actually treating white people for their racism because I hadn't quite figured it all out yet. It took me two years. Uh, I, I know that doesn't seem like a long period of time and really in retrospect, it's not, but given the intensity of the work I was doing and how hard, hard I was working, I think that that's a, a big reason why, uh, I was kind of tenacious and relentless in my pursuit of the solution. And it just became an all encompassing thing for me. And, um, but I knew narcissism was an issue from the beginning. The problem was Ashley is that, um, uh, not only am I redefining racism, but I'm also redefining narcissism hmm. because right now the way narcissism is seen, and I pretty much completely disagree with, um, the majority of, uh, uh, people who teach about narcissism, which is that narcissism is only seen in a malignant type narcissism way. So it's only seen really what I call in an overtly narcissistic way, but to understand the definition of narcissism, we need to turn to its root. 
So actually, the root word of narcissism is narc, mm. which is a Greek word. And that word actually means to numb. Mm. And when I found this out, so this is how I, this is how I started redefining narcissism. Cause like, wait a minute, narc is to numb. That reminds me of emotional numbing. And, but then there was this compulsiveness element to it too. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is addiction. Like I started seeing this, right? So then I basically started realizing um, as I, you know, read literature on, on addiction. And I, of course, I study addiction anyway as a psychotherapist and lots of my patients, uh, you know, struggle with addiction. Um, I started seeing the parallel. So in other words, narcissism is typically only seen as um, you're just an evil person. You're just going after somebody and you want to take power away from them. Now it is true that a narcissist wants to take power away from people, but there's a reason for that. So essentially for me, Ashley, the, the turning point in understanding all these connections, like straight up aside from the defense mechanism, like the true, true thing that, you know, the, the one ring to bind them all <laughs> so to speak, right? (laughs) It is actually attachment, attachment trauma. So once I understood that the underlying issue of narcissism was attachment trauma, then I needed to understand the behaviors. Why, you know, do white people uh, go into these defenses? Well, the well, reason- can we explain that? Can we like put yeah. a little pin in that? Because I know that we have an episode on the different types of attachment. And those of you who are curious about that yeah. in the love category, we have uh, Nora DeKaiser who talks about that. But I'm curious just for your, like, your, from your perspective, what does attachment trauma look like or means mm-hmm. for people who maybe are new to this concept? Absolutely. So um, it might help to define att- the different attachment styles. So yeah. we have, first of all, we have either insecure or secure attachment right? Mm -hmm. And this goes all the way back to childhood. Okay. And this has to do with attunement. So I think the simplest way for people to understand is as, as, as uh, cheesy as it sounds like a mama duck with her baby ducklings or a uh, big bear with their little bear, right? With their cub. Um, Or as a mother looking down at their child, it's, it really has to do with the fact that um, that attunement is imprinting it literally is basically imprinting. So when we're born, um, basically we learn how to self-regulate by attuning to our primary caregivers, because when we're born, we don't know how to emotionally regulate. So when a person is born and they have primary caregivers that cannot provide them that optimal attunement, then the child grows up to be an adult who cannot self-regulate. And when one cannot self-regulate, they tend to be, um, they then become addicted to other human beings. And that's narcissism because what's happening is that the human only naturally wants that connection. So if you've ever heard of codependency as love addiction, it's basically the same thing. Narcissism is that emptiness that a person feels and It's just an, it actually is just a human being desperately trying to have uh, a secure, loving relationship. And uh, the substitution of that is um, basically narcissism. It, It means that narcissism essentially is an attachment disorder 
where a person hasn't gotten their attachment needs met. So if you haven't gotten your attachment needs met, you're going to be a narcissist, which is basically most Americans and most people in the world. I myself, I tell people, people like, why? I said, I'm a recovered narcissist. I say that. And I was a recovered codependent. And so basically, uh, I definitely grew up and didn't get what I needed as a kid. And I ended up um, being narcissistic to people to try to get those needs met, to get those connection needs met. Don't you think that that's a lot of people? Like, I feel pretty like most people, people. Yeah, most <laughs> people didn't get what, they're, what they needed from their parents yeah, or their parents pretty were much. preoccupied with yeah. their job or their right. marriage. Right. God knows what. Right. And they felt neglected or whatever. So. Yeah. I guess, and that's the thing about narcissism, and I'm totally fascinated by it. I, I dated a narcissist, um, and I guess there's a lot of easy diagnosing, but man, this guy had so many of the things. I was the typical empath way back when, yeah. um, when I dated him, and it, it opened my eyes to some of the habits, patterns, and sabotaging that narcissists can do, and how damaging it can be to be close to somebody who's very high on the narcissistic scale. But you're bringing out a really good point, which is that we all have different levels of narcissism yes. inside of us. Yeah. I mean, for me to have my own personal brand, there's a level of healthy narcissism to that alone. I don't think there's any such thing as healthy narcissism. There, there's essentially narcissism is just not healthy. Mm. Um, so, so let me explain. So, like, basically, we have um, it, the thing is, narcissism has become. Let me tell you the narcissism that's really popular and very socially accepted, and the one that's not. This will kind of help too. So the really. The really unpopular type of narcissism is what you just described, a malignant narcissist, someone who perpetrates overt narcissism. Overt narcissism is when a narcissist, when they try to take power, they maintain the relationship by, by trying to take power over another human being. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of like saying, I'm going to dump you before you dump me. I'm going to be in control of because there is abandonment issues a lot of the time. So these people, like they were abandoned as children or they, you know, they just didn't get their needs met as kids. So the way that they try to maintain their relationships is always to, 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 to be in control of where the relationship's going to go. So that's how they maintain the relationship. And this is addiction. This is an addiction to having power over people in order to get one's relationship, one's emotional security needs met. However, this does not actually uh, help a person get their relation, their uh, relationship needs met, their emotional needs met. The whole time that individual is emotionally insecure, and that emotional insecurity leads to compulsion, which is the addiction to. That's why they will go from one to the next to the next to the next in these toxic relationships, right? And they'll go looking for the next fix. So that's what the overt narcissist will do, right? Now the covert narcissist, here's the most popular, most socially acceptable uh, type of narcissism. And, And that strangely enough is what makes it all the more difficult to treat uh, and for people to come to an acceptance of this, which is that uh, a covert narcissist is someone who is addicted to giving power to people. And that's how they maintain their relationships. So when you have someone that is an overt narcissist who is then connected to someone who's a covert narcissist, uh, the covert narcissist is taught usually from the time that they're very young, from their primary caregivers, that in order to for us to have a relationship, you need to just kind of do as I say and not as I do. It's a very it's a it's a parenting style that's very um, overbearing. Mm-hmm. So then the codependent or the covert narcissist learns, well, in order for me to have a relationship, I have to give my power away. Mm-hmm. And so the covert narcissist actually becomes addicted to 
this is passive aggressive. This is giving it's manipulative. So both are types of manipulation. Uh, one takes their power and gives it away in order to have a connection. And the other one takes power over another person. So you can now see how easy it is for a covert overt narcissist to come together in a symbiotic relationship because one of them wants the power over the person. And the other person says, sure, let's have this relationship. I'll give my power away to stay connected. And, well, and I want to put a little mark on that because what you're yeah. saying here, I think a lot of people would not think that the person who gives their power and becomes like the people pleaser or the over functioner or the over giver, mm-hmm. like people wouldn't necessarily think there's something narcissistic about that, but they were wanting that validation from Correct. the other person so much. And it's for them to feel like they matter or that, that they're valuable and they over-function or over-give so that they can keep the relationship intact. Correct. And there's like a level of narcissism and attachment issues there because yes. I think that there's a lot of people listening where beyond racism, this is just happening in their romantic relationships Absolutely. or just in their business relationships where they're like, how can I be a narcissist? I'm just giving, giving, giving. Right. But it's like you have an agenda under it and your agenda is to get something from them that you didn't get when you were a kid or that you're not giving yes. yourself. Really, really and if and if you start to think of narcissism as an addiction, you'll begin to see, you know, a lot of people think, why can't a woman leave an abusive relationship with a man? Well, it has to do with the fact they're addicted to that man. They're addicted to the charm and the, you know, and the, and the, and the cycle of abuse. This is interesting. We're going to tie this into racism because this is actually the foundation of racism. Um, the cycle of abuse, I want everyone listening to realize that the cycle of abuse is actually the cycle of narcissism. It actually, when we think of the cycle of violence, it actually is the honeymoon stage and all that stuff. It actually is, if you think of another human being as a substance to be used, Mm -hmm. when we think of substance abuse, right? Um, when we haven't recovered from our narcissism, we are going to exactly try to get those attachment needs met, those relationship needs met, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, in an over or covert way, right? And we are going to abuse another person. So a covert narcissist will um, be manipulative by giving their power away and to expect something back. Uh, that's the contract. That's a covert contract. That's that's part of that, right? That's the addiction, right? Um, and then again, the overt narcissist will say, "Well, you know, um, aren't I the best? And I should be worshipped. And I should have the entitlement, you know." So that's so they they need someone to be addicted to them, and their addiction is to have someone addicted to them. So that's it's actually a use use relationship, and not a um. It, it's, it's, um, it's more of a use, use relationship, actually what's happening. And with regard to racism, and this is why I say all of this, um, because white people actually learn their first, you got to have that hot bed of narcissism growing up. You got to have that, the attachment disorder right off. It, it's, it's a, it is the perfect storm for racism because racism is just one type of drug. So sexism, racism, homophobia, all these things, transphobia, okay, etc. These are all types of addictions to certain people based on their identity. Mm-hmm. Xenophobia too. So for example, you might hear conservatives say, well, the reason I have all the, I feel so insecure and so unsafe is because of these immigrants because they keep on coming over, but that's actually their personal issue. And now they're going into the persecutor mode 
which is part of the, I'm getting very clinical today in this interview, but this is part of what's called the Cartman drama triangle. So essentially when we are, when we, so essentially when we go into overt narcissism like that, like a, let's say a um, racist who's xenophobic to uh, the immigrants and all that, that what is, a what a cocktail of things we need to work out. Yeah, there's a lot of things. You interviewed me, it's going to be a lot of cocktail of things, a lot of clinical stuff, a lot of science. So, um, so basically the role that we play, the, I'll say specifically white folks, the, the role that they play when they're racist is either going to be one of three ways. And we're going to see this in the Cartman drama triangle. It's either you're going to be the persecutor or the perpetrator, right? You're going, which represents the overt narcissist, right? And that would be like, uh, that would be white supremacists. That would be et cetera, et cetera, all white nationalists, all that, right? Now we've have the majority of Americans who are covert racists, right? And what they do is they perpetrate their racism in a way where they go into saviorism and they go into the savior mode. They go into the rescuer mode of the Cartman drama triangle. So this is where at the beginning you said, you know, we're talking about um, performative allyship, right? So performative mm-hmm. allyship actually represents uh, covert narcissism, covert racism, codependency. And, and, and that performance has to do with um, I'm going to give my power away to establish solidarity with POC. The problem. Wait, so can, you, yeah. can you give an example of that? If I was doing yeah. that with this podcast or with yeah. my Instagram, can you give a picture of what that covert yeah. narcissism would look like among yeah. influencers so we can understand? Right. <laughs> you are a brave person. Let me tell you, you are brave. <laughs> so, um, so you're already catching up on that. So yes, most, most white folks, uh, who mean well are, for example, they say, let me amplify black voices. Let me amplify this. And what you're doing is you're just doing what black folks tell you to do. You're trying to do what POC tell you to do. Um, I get it. Um, but even those POC don't understand the, the clinical complexity of racism. Right. And so, I mean, I mean, it's not to be, you know, condescending. It's just, this is very complex as you're listening and this is way more complex than people realize. And so, um, I, most white people that mean well are actually codependents and they're struggling with codependency. And in order to nip that racism in the bud, as I tell my <laughs> nip it in the bud, we have to nip in the bud that codependency. So when you say that you were in a previously abusive relationship, I mean, that's like, okay, so you've had a history of codependency. You still may not have recovered from that codependency. And that's, and, and, and so to end that racism, we have to end that codependency because you see that codependency, then it ends up getting expressed unconsciously mm-hmm. to POC and that's saviorism. What does it look like when somebody's in saviorism? Can you give like a comment or something that they do? Yeah. Well, it, like I said, they give their power away. So for example, uh, a lot of my uh, patients and coaching clients, let's say that they go to an, uh, I don't know, an anti-racism workshop you know, and, and, and they go to some influencer online or something and they're impressed and they have a hundred thousand followers, blah, blah, blah. You know, (laughs) they're all that means they're competent. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they go to this space and, um, there are rules such as sit down, shut up, don't say anything. It's actually, by the way, very overtly narcissistic behavior, even from that social justice standpoint. Right. Mm -hmm. And so this white person then engages in that symbiotic relationship now, but with the POC. So the POC has been the victim of racism, which is the victim of narcissism, right? Systemic Mm -hmm. narcissism, systemic racism, right? 
Um, but said white person, for example, say it's a white woman. Let's say that they grew up in a family where dad was the the primary caregiver. Um, I mean, I mean the the breadwinner rather. And mom, white mom, just kind of said, okay, we're just going to do what we're supposed to do. Or let's say they came from a religious background where again, the patriarchy, right? We're just supposed to do what we're told. We're supposed to give our power away for protection and for money and for safety and security, right? This is how we maintain our security through money, right? And, and other means, right? Um, but that doesn't actually help with emotional security, right? So then switching back to the workshop, a white person will actually reenact their trauma uh, from the past, with let's say their dad or with someone from their childhood and will actually project that onto a POC. So that because if a POC engages and reminds them on a subconscious level of let's say an overbearing father, uh, that white person may shut down. Mm-hmm. That white person will immediately go, you know what, to protect myself. I'm just, yes, yes, yes. I'm sorry. Yes, 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 yes. I mean, I see this like all the time and my fellow POCs say, that's right. White person, let's put you in check. And I'm like, but you're being overtly narcissistic to a narcissist who's codependent. Yes. So, this is something I actually that, saw in the DMS. I've got it. You're Mark, what you're saying here. I saw this in the DMS the week of black lives matter really reaching a height. And it was weirdest experience. Like, first of all, and and I would love your feedback and I would love for you to call me out too, because I'm open here. Like I, I, um, I'm in a circle of really amazing women Mm -hmm. and I I guess it's noteworthy to say, like, there's all different colors in my circle, which is cool. Um, and, and we were, most of the white influencers were added into a DM group, Mm -hmm. um, the week of black lives matter. And it's interesting because in my circle of friends, every single woman, we hold each other's, um, like wounding or trauma with a lot of awareness. Mm. Like I know one girl was bullied in middle school. So, and she has a thing about speaking behind her back. Mm. So if I'm upset at her, I'll say, Hey, I I wanted to talk to this person about it and get their perspective. Mm. Like I try to create safety for that person. It's earned secured attachment. You are earning that relationship by respecting her boundaries. Good for you. (laughs) you. You It's so interesting. Um, All my friends are like, you've been the connector among us all. I'm like, no, I haven't. It's just that I am very specific on who I spend time with. And it's interesting because they all have asked me like, do you have any girl trauma? And I'm like, no, like in middle school, high school, elementary school, I've always loved my girlfriends. I have no, maybe in college, there's like a rude roommate. Like I just don't have girl stuff. That's not my stuff. I have other stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because the week of black lives matter, about 10 of my white influencer friends were put into a DM from a girl that I don't even know who she was. Her profile was private. And she put about 10 black influencers in the DM and started like calling each one of the white influencers out. One of them, it felt super wounded. Wow. She had like a personal grievance where she clearly, um, and, and I know this very deeply because the girl who she had a grievance with had called me and said, I just don't resonate with this person. It's not a racial thing. Oh and the girl was just like blasting her publicly in front of 20 business women. And I think about like the level of defamation of character. Yeah. I think about lens of like, I'm not a litigious person. I wouldn't go through with like lawsuits. It's just not the thing I go for. But I just was thinking about the amount of shaming, embarrassment. And if any white woman in that DM was to say, this is bullying, 
which to me it was. It was yes, really that is definitely bullying. Yeah, it yeah. was bullying. Absolutely. Never in my life have I seen anything like it. And yeah. I and I texted my friends and I said, "This is the first time in my life that I've seen women bullying women in something that I'm involved in." Mm-hmm. And there were tears. I called them. I'm like, "I'm so sorry. I've never seen anybody attack um, somebody like this." But one of them was her approach was just to keep saying, sorry, you're right. But then when I would call her, it was like, she had total awareness. She's like, yeah, I never really thought about anti-racism in this way. I'm definitely going to use my platform to be a bit different with it. Mm -hmm. And so she had this like dignified, real awareness of it. But the way she was facing the criticism was like, sorry, you're right. Sorry, you're right. And I would call her and be like, they're not fucking right. They're being mean to you. that's not right. That's very overtly narcissistic. And unfortunately, this is what I want to ask you. Show me that. Because I think there's like a level of keeling over. Yeah. And there's a lot of like public posts of like, we could have done better. But then when I'm behind closed doors with these influencer friends that I have, they're like, yeah, we could do better. But we've got to like really put it out there because we are being like attacked. Right. And we know we need to do better, but there's something going on in influencer land that they need to publicly announce and put on a show. And and I myself with this this BLM episode that I have you on, I knew when I started Black Lives Matter, I was like, oh, cool. Like U-Turn podcast is like my favorite thing that I do other than the book I wrote. Like, how can I create something stimulating, valuable, and insightful for everybody. And energetically, I was like, okay, this movement isn't something that's like trending for a week. It's something that's going to go on a lifetime. I'm going to take my time. And for the next like three to six months, I'm going to pick people to interview and make it the stimulating experience and educate my listeners the best I can as I get educated too. And I got a ton of DMs shaming me. So I'm just curious, like, yeah. Of like, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh and I'm not, I'm trying to be as sensitive as I can, but it's just that I've you. seen this happen again and again. And, and you're right to pick my brain on this because it's very apparent to me, but, but it, it will, I suppose, like definitely enlighten you and your listeners about what's going down. Yeah. I would love for us to actually take this influencer DM that I'm talking about and look at your steps of denial, intellectualization, saviorism, perfectionism, projection, racist, racist rejection of whiteness, leadership. How does all of these look in a DM where people are being attacked? Right. So, so when, so let's start with the racial trigger, right? So the, so the racial trigger is, uh, inviting a bunch of POC into a DM box. Um, now, first of all, I can tell you that when that was done, that was actually, in my viewpoint, a disrespect of boundaries. So already boundaries were being violated because that was supposed to be an all white space. And I know those are listening. What do you mean all white space? It's like, yes, that's an all white space because these white people need to talk about their racism and they need to talk about other things in their lives. And like you said, it's very personal. First of all, that was a violation right off the bat. That was a violation. Number two, um, let's talk about the, and I call them the racist signature patterns. So the seven become 42, right? So let's talk about the sorry one. So Mm -hmm. when I coach my white clients, um, and they learn in the second 90 days about the racist signature patterns, um, the racial trigger in this case would be POC on blast in this DM box, right? And then using, uh, information, uh, publicly to publicly humiliate shame and all that stuff. Right. Pressure. Um, There's a lot of yeah. pressuring. We're going to yep. call you out. We're yep. going to post about you. If Everybody you don't follow the rules of etiquette of anti-racism, we're going to publicly humiliate and shame you. And, and basically we are going to, we're going to try right. to, 
control you so that we're not hurt, right? Except that doesn't work. So, so then, because two wrongs don't make a right. So then um, the one that said she was sorry, that is what I call racist intellectualization. Now, I don't know what would be, essentially what would be driving that is either, is a very likely perfectionism. A -hmm. lot of the time, I call it the two fours. So externally, she went into intellectualization. How do I know it's intellectualization? Because first of all, I've worked with, oh my gosh, like 200 plus white people. Um, They are literally told in anti-racism spaces just to say, I'm sorry. They're literally told that like this has to do with I read this in the book. I heard this This is what I heard was socially acceptable. I'm sorry. The problem is, is that when you right when you say you're sorry, but you don't actually understand what your problem is, you you don't actually understand what your problem is, but you say you're sorry. That's very inauthentic. It's not Mm -hmm. coming from a genuine place of exploration and understanding your racism. It's just, I'm trying to save face. And that's an example of performative allyship. And, and funny thing is, but it's not funny, which is that influencers, um, anti-racism influencers on the whole, they actually, they say, don't do performative allyship, but then they literally teach performative allyship. Yeah. That's what I'm struggling with. And I also like confusing for white friends. Yeah. I can't fault my friend for saying, sorry, she was being attacked and she just wanted it to end. She was already doing her part. And I think that's the weird thing about it is like everybody in their little corner of the world knows that they're doing what they're doing and they can go to bed at night and kind of know where they stand on the issue deeply. And I feel like a lot of the girls were actually quite clean on the issue. Like, yes, there's recovery that is involved always in educating, but there was like a really beautiful energy when I contacted them of like, where do you stand with this? I'm really intimidated by the CM. Like, what do you suggest? I don't want to be called fragile. You know what I mean? Like for just speaking up, like, you know, um, and I found that all of them, I was really proud of their, um, stance on it. It felt very like, wow, I'm in a really beautiful community of women who really see the world and like get this issue as best as they can. And so it was almost like they were just put on the spot and I just couldn't fault them for being like, I'm on the spot. I just need to make this end for now. Yeah, that's, that's basically bullying. And so what most anti-racism influencers in particular, my experience and my observation, um, my fellow black female influencers, unfortunately, um, they, they take on the role of the perpetrator, unfortunately. Um, and so they have simultaneously been the victims of racism, uh, been the victims of narcissism. And then, um, instead of realizing that we need to stop the cycle of abuse, bottom line everywhere, uh, they then perpetrate uh, in a, um, they then perpetrate overt narcissism. And so that whole DM situation and the public humiliation, all these things, these call-ins and call-outs, um, this is all, these are all examples of the persecutor role in the Cartman drama triangle. And all of the women in the DM were then switched into codependency into the rescuer role. Um, and, and that, and that's why I say that, um, essentially what the, a lot of the anti POC anti-racism influencers they're doing is that they believe that social justice is to be had when white people then kick into this role of like essentially giving their power away because it's seen as what well, we have, right. It seems like it makes sense, right? Like, okay, we have white supremacy. We have, you know, all this stuff where white people are control. Doesn't it just make sense that you give your power away? No, because narcissism doesn't stop narcissism. So, because here's the thing, codependency plants the seed of inequality. Mm. Think about it. So if you give your power away, how are you actually creating a secured, earned, attached relationship? You're not. 
Mm-hmm. So, so that means that together, white and black, white and POC, we together need to together develop earned, secured, attached relationships, right? Mm-hmm. And that needs to happen. You know, mm-hmm. Martin Luther King Jr. was persecuted by black folks because he tried to develop earned, secured, attached relationships actually with white people. Mm-hmm. And they said, how could you try to, why are you trying to have peace and like a relationship with these white people? But Martin Luther King Jr. was very smart and he, and he learned from Gandhi, even though Gandhi himself, we could go into another rabbit hole. He himself advocated for very racist things in India, but everybody has that level of narcissism somewhere. So, but, um, but it is true, you know, peace peaceful protest, peaceful, uh, approach, earned secured attachment is key. Um, but also I agree with Malcolm X that, you know, if you're tread upon too hardly, you have a right to protect yourself. So it's a balance. So the thing is, yeah. is that like busting into a DM is not the way to establish a relationship with any human being. So in other words, you got to practice what you preach. These people are hypocrites, all the anti, and they don't like it when I say that too bad, the anti-racism influencers, which pretty much dominate Instagram, they are hypocritical and they don't understand. They don't want to look at themselves in the mirror and all of these white women, it's sad. They struggle with codependency. So they just do what they're told and give their power away. And I'm like, that's not the way to cultivate true solidarity. Mm-hmm. The way to really cultivate solidarity as in like um, accountability, right? Because what, what POC want is for white people to be accountable. And that's why I do racism recovery, because um, white people essentially... They get they have impunity on a lot of their behaviors. So if you're wondering why, also why so those white women and you see this all over Instagram, why are these white women publicly humiliated? All this because this is for a lot of influencers. They think you know what we're going to do this because they get away with so much and they don't get punished and there's no consequences to their racist behavior. We're going to force it to happen. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that again is that you're a hypocrite. You don't practice what you preach. So you say, I want to end violence in my community. Then you perpetrate violence. Mm-hmm. It never works. It never works. Narcissism doesn't end narcissism. It never works. May, now, temporarily, it may feel kind of good. Oh, yeah. I they're they're really right. And yeah. that's the addiction. So unfortunately, there's a lot of anti-racism influencers who are unfortunately addicted to bashing white people and gaining followers for bashing white people and punishing them and saying, look, we're holding them accountable. And then you get white people to do the same thing. They go like that person by the POC in now let's, uh, that person's looking, that person's being a rescuer too. I'm going to rescue these POC by bringing them into a situation with a bunch of white women and violating their boundaries to, for social justice purposes. That mm-hmm. is not right. Mm-hmm. It's wrong on every single level. And I don't care how popular it is to act overtly narcissistic with white people, it does not work because all it does is reenact the trauma of a lot of white people who struggle with codependency, struggle with that covert racism, covert narcissism, and they just reenact those traumas from the past. And it just becomes quite frankly, a shit show on Instagram. And that's, and, and what we see on Instagram is that Cartman drama triangle. We see persecutors. Yes. We see rescuers and we see victims. And essentially when 
that's what happens. So you have P- so you have white people that see POC who have been the victims of racism. Those POCs say we need to keep these white people accountable, except they don't know how to do it. They actually psychologically they don't realize that they're dealing with people with mental illness and they're trying to, um, you know, what this reminds me of Ashley. Mm, this reminds me, unfortunately, uh, of what we used to do with people with mental illness, lobotomy. Yeah. I get that. It's like, let's just physically abuse them. Let's give them a lobotomy. And that's how we're going to end their malady. It's like, no, that's not how we end addiction. That's not how we end narcissism. That's not how we deal with attachment disorder. Think about it. If a person has an attachment disorder as narcissist, and we're all grown up with these issues, right? That means we get a lack of love and attention. So it's real funny because I'll see, I'll see POC who, who honestly don't know what they're doing and they'll tell me that they just, they don't get it. And, and they'll say to me, oh, you're anti-black and you're calling these white people. I said, no, actually I'm treating their attachment wounds mm-hmm. because they are acting narcissistic because they have an empty hole in a shell that needs to be filled. Yeah. Well, this actually, this makes me want to ask you, and I also want to go through these seven things even more because I think they're so powerful and I'm I'm just so excited by the work you're doing. It feels so unique. And I I just like such a dopamine rush out of somebody (laughs) getting this voice. That's not so novel. Intellectuals love my my work. Intellectuals. So there you go. You know, I, well, you know, it's interesting. I studied black history and I feel like I can't say much on black history because it feels like this, this movement and this cause feels so much deeper than everything I read in a textbook that happened. Like there's so much more to understanding racism, but I had something happen to me this week and it was so much, um, on the soul. And I don't mean to sound fragile, I guess. And that's a question I have also around right fragility versus just being a human being. That's your perfectionism coming in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. She she posted, um, so on my website, I have business coaching. It's not something I lead with. It's something that happens sometimes for coaches that come on in and I have 16 steps on there. And one of the steps is hiring. And one of the things I've been a really big proponent for, and I feel vulnerable even mentioning this because I feel like I'm my own narcissism is like, I'm exposing myself doing a black lives matter episode. That's true. I I told you I had courage. It takes a hell of a lot of courage to work with me. Yeah. Like I'm going to get messages about me saying something stupid or who knows. Of course you will. That's fine. It's, it's just, Course. This girl posted um, a screenshot from my website, and she's from the Philippines, and she lives in America. Yeah. And it says, "Why? Oh, why? My I, my web copy was written probably eight years ago, so I should have looked at it again. But that's to cover my own ass and not actually to be a good person mm-hmm. in business. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And my website says something like." Um, I've spent so much money hiring talent that isn't the right fit for the role. And one of the most powerful things I've learned as an entrepreneur is that there's talent overseas that you can hire for a fraction of the cost in the United States. Let me support you in finding technology support that can sustain your business. Mm -hmm. Something like that. Mm -hmm. She posted a screenshot of it and had a whole post about like, I'm so tired of white entrepreneurs making money off the backs of these people in different places. Mm-hmm. And it went, it didn't really go viral, but I would say like probably, you know, like a handful of people shared it. She had a bunch of comments. It was the most active post she's ever made on her account. Right. And it was, it was a carousel. She had like other stuff on there. And then she had a screenshot of my website and yeah. 
I just commented and was like, Hey, look, um, I try not to be defensive. I was like, thanks for bringing an important topic to life. Like modern day slavery definitely exists. Um, you know, like I'm also very aware that companies like Facebook just announced that while most of their staff is allowed to work remotely, they'll adjust their salaries based on the cost of living and where they're living. Um, you know, different economics require different wages. And I think it's really important that, um, you know, like the Western world is power in empowering people, especially when it can mean that their business is winning in some way from that. It's a win-win. Um, and there's a whole thread on it, but all of this to be said, I deleted my Instagram for like five days because I was spared a lot of trolls during black lives matter. Um, and that, that my girlfriends really faced in that DM that I was talking to you about. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was my first experience in a while. I've definitely been trolled before. I definitely can take criticism, but there was something really intense about it and the comments. And it just felt like, man, I got to get some air. I need to step away from this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious, like, what is your feedback? Cause I don't want to shame or negate somebody who is calling something out that they think is important. What feedback do you have around the act of calling things out or, or, or showing something to the world versus publicly shaming? You know what I mean? There's such a line. Mm-hmm. There is. And in my experience, what I've seen on Instagram, but we can see this all over Instagram, uh, a lot of social justice influencers and just influencers, period, will um, they'll increase their follower count by shaming other people with a much larger follower account. That's how they kind of get like followers to come over. You know what I'm talking about. They publicly shame and you get people to come over. Oh, that person must know something. They called them out. That's overt narcissism. I don't care if they're POC. I don't care what color, shape, creed they are. That's narcissistic. Okay. Now, a lot of these POC learn this behavior by, by idealizing anti-racism influencers Mm. who lead that, who lead that overtly narcissistic behavior. And they normalize that stuff. Mm. And so they learn a lot of POC admire them because they go, gosh, you know what? We've been violated so many times by white people. You finally get them in the keister, you know, let's get them, you know? And it's like, I remember when I used to feel that way too. I'm not even going to sit here and say that I didn't enjoy that white suffering years ago, you know, but then what, you know, it's kind of funny. You asked, you said suffering. Yeah. The white (laughs) suffering. I mean, the white tears, just like any other POC (laughs) overtly narcissistic, Eh, you know, you know, drink and eat, sleep, white tears for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I was like, yes, let's get them, you know? And I used to be that way too. But actually, you know, earlier in, in the, this interview, you asked me, what was that turning point? Actually, I need to be, actually, I need to go back a little bit. Yeah. What is that turning point? The true turning point was when I reflected on my old professor, Brene Brown. You can't shame somebody to change. Hmm. That stuck with me. And then... I was actually noticing that there was this one black uh, anti-racism educator with who I'm not going to name. I'm not going to do overt narcissism, and uh, but we're going to use this as an example. And I noticed that there was a white woman who had kind of like taken some of her content and kind of rebranded it a little bit. Right. And that of course is very uh, covertly narcissistic uh, actually, and uh, didn't credit this, you know, uh, black educator. And it was weird. I thought, gosh, you know, that looks just like what you're doing. And then the white person said, oh my gosh, like, it's true. I haven't credited this, this, uh, black educator, right? I said, okay. I said, that's very racist. And it was very racist. Um, but here's the deal is that the way, this is the thing that got me slowing down. I go, wait a minute, you participated with in a full year with this black woman 
and I'm watching you sit there act in a in a racist way by exploiting or using her. Remember, I told you it's an addiction. You're using her content, right? You're exploiting. So I, I want to understand oh, this. She was copying and pasting her content or using her branding. What do you mean by this? Using, using her ideas and concepts. Okay, got it. And so I was like, wait a minute. That's very exploitive. Like, wait a minute. You learned from this same black woman for a year. Mm-hmm. And you literally act in a race. So that made me think this whole, because this particular educator is actually very verbally and emotionally violent to these white women. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it's a lot of white women that tend to go to her. And I was like, this woman is, hasn't changed. She's still racist. Mm-hmm. And I saw how she cowered in fear. And, and I, and I was like, this is wrong. So like going back to the DM again, you notice like cowering in fear, intimidation, bullying. And I saw that a lot of the, the, the workshops and things that this, this person was basically convinced white people to believe that, the way to end racism was to take the abuse, to take the bullying. And I, that's like very popular on Instagram. And when I call this out, when I, when I talk about this, that's unhealthy. I don't do this to shame anyway. I do this because it's very unhealthy and it's dysfunctional. Right. And, and nobody likes that because it makes good money. Take that white money, abuse these white people, win-win for POC. No, because then you're becoming the perpetrator and that doesn't actually end the violence. It actually shifts it in a different way. And it's just like, what? So right now it's become very popular. Yeah, it's very popular. There's also displaced energy. I think I'm noticing that there's a lot of issues that are being pinned as racism that are not like, for example, the posts that I had around like feeling kind of trolled this past week about somebody being like, this girl is, you know, modern day slavery. It's like, no, I, I pay my VA double quadruple the minimum, you know, like I'm, I'm, but it was interesting because she said, this is racism and you have a lot to learn around racism. Well, that was actually saviorism. So it was racist. Uh, <laughs> it, it was saviorist, but the problem is I'm like, boo, <laughs> actually, no, tell me, tell me the, how the, I'm saviorist or how yeah, she was. Like, the, I don't understand. The, the problem is, is that the problem is, is that it's so subtle that what happens with a lot of POC is that they know they're being exploited and violated. And sometimes as human beings, when we've been violated or exploited or are triggered, we're emotionally triggered as human beings, we then will kick into that persecutor mode. We will, we'll lose it. Like I'm thinking about, um, I've done it. I have definitely done it. I did that in 2019 and I had to go to therapy for that myself. Uh, I was attacked. I, I do know what that, without a doubt, I needed to deal with that. Um, mm-hmm. So I say that as someone who understands that. Another person I could think of uh, is, um, I can't remember her name, but it's Melania Trump's old best friend. She she, she works, worked for Vogue or something. She wrote a book about, it's called Melania and Me. And Melania was clearly being very overtly narcissistic to her, first covertly, then overtly. And it hurt her so much. I mean, you watch these interviews on CNN, you watch these interviews, how she was betrayed. Mm. Okay. She was big time betrayed. And she was like, I am being, the Trump administration is making my reputation, making me look bad. In reality, that's a lie. That's not true. That's not, and that is true. They're, they're lying about it and all that kind of stuff. So to, 
to defend herself, she basically goes, I'm going to now write this book and put off this stuff and et cetera, et cetera. Right. But the point is looking at her as a therapist, I'm like, this woman is clearly very traumatized. She's has, she's has uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm seeing a lot of white women on Instagram when they're called out like this. Um, they, they actually get PTSD and that's mm-hmm. a lot of the quote fragility. And, uh, I, What's kicking in for you, and I can tell you this, is a lot of perfectionism, a lot of rule following, because because we live in a very narcissistic world. And so in order to make it in this world right now, until we can truly all properly address, address our narcissism, is a narcissist will always want to, their reputation is very important. And like literally, your people's reputation does matter. And, and, and why is that? Because there are narcissists that are purchasing your services and products. And if you're not perfect, uh, they'll judge you and not buy your services and products. Right. And so, so then what happens is, is that you've got all these white people are going, I need to be perfectly, I need to be a perfect white ally. So I'm going to follow these rules so that I don't lose my business so that I'm not uh, racist. So I'm not hurting people because I certainly don't want to hurt people either. Right. So it's both, uh, all, but a lot of white people don't realize that because it's the way of the world that performance isn't just about performative allyship. Performance has always been an issue from the time we're kids. It's mm-hmm. like perform in a certain way and you get kudos. Perform this way and, and you get money. Perform this way and you don't get money. Do this. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. Do this. Follow the rules or don't follow the rules. You don't follow the rules. You're going to get a consequence, right? Mm-hmm. However, the problem is, is that sometimes we need to break the rules because it's the authentic thing to do, AKA the work that I do, racism recovery. I break the rules completely um, because the rules are narcissistic rules. Uh, these anti-racism rules, do this, do that, don't do this, do that. These are all very narcissistic. They're all very much performative. So uh, when I see that anti-racism influencers are telling white people, we don't want you to be a savior, but now Venmo us because that's reparations. I'm like, uh, mm, you need to get off your addiction from those white tears. That is not going to end racism. That's not going to do it. And then I have some people say, but April, are you trying to say that POC shouldn't get paid? I'm saying, I think POC should get paid for the work that they do. I'm just saying that the, what a lot of these POC are doing, is not actually effectively ending racism. It, it, it's just not. And it doesn't, in a way, it kind of doesn't matter what I say, because in time, people are going to see that. They're going to see that these interventions just don't work. And of course, as time goes by in the past two years, and as I continue to do my work, I mean, more and more people are coming to the side of racism recovery because they're realizing that this goes deeper. This is psychological. This is very complex, more complex. It's just that because I'm saying something so radical and so nuanced and so innovative, it's like, it's kind of like when you look at history and you think about, and this, I swear, this is not to toot my horn. I'm just, I'm being very serious. Like when you look in history, we look up to some amazing people. You know, we, we look up to people, um, who were incredible people who made a difference in the world. And at that time, actually, those people were not popular. Nobody liked them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only after they die that like, Oh, this person's so amazing. Let's like, and then we think, so, yeah, you know what I mean? And then we ask ourselves, how come nobody listened to them? Like how come yeah, nobody listened to them? Because it's called group think and confirmation bias. And it, and it's called, it's called codependency. It's called, it's called, I got to do what everyone else is doing so that I'm not socially rejected because guess what? When you're socially rejected, right? 
that means that you actually can't thrive because we need human connection. We need those relationships. The problem is the way that we connect as human beings, very narcissistic, instead of based on earned, secured attachment. So that's the problem is that right now in this world, in order to end racism, in order to end sexism, in order to end homophobia, we can't just only address racism or only address sexism or only address and separate these things. They're all very intersectional. Why? Why is it intersectional? Well, as someone who's a feminist therapist, thank you, I can tell you that they're intersectional because they're all forms of narcissism. They're all racial discrimination, gender discrimination, any type of discrimination. You know what it is? It's the justification for a narcissist to use another human being. That's what it is. That's all it is. It's like saying, you know what? Because we don't have to do that to alcohol or drugs. We don't have to say, you know what? I have to... You know, we don't tell, <laughs> you know, vodka, you know, you're, you're less of a human. I have a right to use you. <laughs> that's not, that's not how that addiction works. Right. But w- with, with an addiction to another human being, what justifies an addict to use another human being, which is narcissism is I'm going to dehumanize you so that it gives me the right to use you. That's actually what stereotyping and discrimination, all forms of stereotyping discrimination. So with white women in particular, there are actually a lot of white women who do want to do the work. Why? Because they themselves have been the victims of sexism. Hmm. They do understand what it is to be the victim of discrimination. And however, um, it's more than that than acting and doing things because in order to truly help being like to help, a POC and solidarity, that same white woman, she needs to recover from her own narcissism, from that codependency. And so otherwise it is saviorism. Otherwise it is just performance. And so, um, the, yeah, so go on. What would be a comment that would come out of somebody's mouth if they're practicing saviorism? Hmm. Um, I need to use my white privilege to save POC. Okay which is pretty what, what 99.9% of white liberals right now on Instagram, because that's mm-hmm. what POC tell them to do. Mm-hmm. They're teaching them performative, performative allyship and they don't know it. Okay. So it's like, I, I need to educate and I'm in charge of like, so if I came to this podcast and was like, it is my responsibility at, as the host of the U-Turn podcast to <laughs> make sure that I mm-hmm. educate the masses. Like, mm-hmm. is there like some, that that's saviorism? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you can tell I'm so used to doing. You see how you see how embarrassing this is, but it's also very comfortable because I don't believe in shaming people because it's like yeah. saying it. I've done saviorist things, but not in racist ways. You know, mm. um, as a social worker, my God, how many healthcare professionals go? We want to save the world, and it's like, oh, that's using other human beings to make yourself feel good by helping others. Uh, Oh, SpaghettiOs. So like me recovering from my codependency was like, wow. Like, like when you see a lot of healthcare professionals and they burn out, it's because they're codependent. Like they're addicted to rescuing people. They're addicted. Like, why do you see cops and firefighters and healthcare workers and public service people? They burn out because they're, they're codependent. Like mm-hmm. they, they need to recover from their narcissism, their covert narcissism. They're, they, don't, they can't set boundaries. They, they, they fail to practice self-care because they haven't recovered from their narcissism. Because again, at, what happens if you act in a savior's way? You get kudos, you get awards, you get, you're a hero. 
Yeah. And you know, and you know what that comes down to? It means that when a person was a child, they needed to be rescued and saved. So what does that person do? They go and save everybody. (laughs) Well, and you talk about, that's called reenactment trauma. That's it's simple. That's what it is. Mm, rescuing I, I can't tell you i mean this could be literally a love episode at this point in the love it category is a love episode all of my coaching clients like halfway through the program they're like wait a minute april are you telling me to end racism we gotta learn to love ourselves i'm like yeah <laughs> basically yeah we don't know how to love ourselves <laughs> Yeah, totally. Well, there, that does go back to a lot. And going back, so I know that saviorism was step number three that you had mentioned. One and two were denial and intellectualization. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What would it look like as a white woman if I was in denial or intellectualizing around racism? Okay. So um, a common one is, and it's really hard, is uh, let's say that, um, oh, let's say that, because I get these posts, or not, not as much anymore, but... Um, I, I, I will get, let's say a white one says, but, but April, <laughs> but I'm, but isn't it like, right. To be giving all my money, these POC, because I'm a, I'm a white supremacist and we live in a white supremacist, but shouldn't I do that? Shouldn't I do that? And then I go, but that savior is, and they go, but, but that can't be because these POC say otherwise. So that's going, that's because that white person's addicted to uh, philanthropy and giving, 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 and it makes them feel good. It's a fix. It makes me feel good. Like I'm, it's a temporary fix for shame and vulnerability. And so, um, wouldn't philanthropy be like a saviorism thing? Like very I much so. There's a long. So what about denial? Where does that mm-hmm. where does that fit into denial or intellectualizing? The denial happens a lot when white people don't want to give up their saviors. Hmm. So that means mm-hmm. they don't want to give it up. Think about it. So when we think about addiction, it means I don't want to give up. So basically, if you, it, I'm sure you know the, the term narcissistic supply. So yeah. for it, it well, has to explain that though for the listeners, because I don't think everybody yeah. knows what a narcissistic so, supply is. So narcissistic supply means that a narcissist is basically, um, at least the way I say it, because you're going to hear it in different ways, but I see narcissism as an addiction. Narcissistic supply is literally the other person is their supply. Mm-hmm. They're feeding off that other person. Yes. So remember when I said that, so narcissistic supply for an overt narcissist is that supply means I'm going to take power over that covert narcissist because they're just readily giving their power away, right? They're giving their energy away. They're giving their time, their, their affection, they're giving, they're, they're, they're struggling with their boundaries, right? Well, often the covert narcissist, just as a reminder, my little friends here is, um, the empath usually, yeah, that's how they look. They're empathic and they want to give, give, give and please so that they're validated. Okay. Accepted to be accepted, people pleasing, accepted, uh, to have connection. It's a genuine need and desire for connection. Um, the, the, it's funny because the overt narcissist acts like they don't want connection. Yes, they do. Mm -hmm. That's all fake. They try to say, Oh, I don't need that person. Yeah, you do. You want connection. Mm -hmm. It's not healthy, mm-hmm. but anyway, um, but yeah, so, um, a white savior, um, so when you struggle with saviorism, it's hard to let it go. And, and this is when the self-deception comes into play with the denial. It means that, but everyone else is saying it, so it can't be that's denial, but all mm-hmm. the other POC and even black people are saying that that's what we're supposed to use, use our white privilege. That's also denial. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't help. I really don't like the fact that my own black folks keep on enabling this saviorism. Like this is something that 
uh, it's going to take a long time for my fellow black folks to stop doing that. Not all black people do this, but a lot of black people do. Um, and they've been taught this, unfortunately, by influencers and other people. Use your white privilege. And it's like, do you realize you're teaching these? You're literally telling white people to save you. Like you are literally giving them narcissistic supply. You know, a lot of people wonder, April, but your work is so revolutionary. How come you don't have like so many followers? I'm like, because detox is not popular. <laughs> Who wants to detox off narcissistic supply? Nobody. Yeah. Who yeah. wants to go against the grain? Nobody. Nope. Well, and talk to me about intellectualization because this one feels really interesting. And um, I feel like I have a perception of what you might say, what, what you mean by this, but what does it look like when somebody's intellectualizing and they're not going in the direction of recovery? Okay. So again, we'll, we'll take it into the context of overt and covert narcissism, right? So, so overt... So overt narcissism intellectualization would be, let's say that you have Tucker Carlson on Fox News and he says, someone says, you're saying something racist. And he says, absolutely not. And this is why. So that wow. would be, you know, that's like an overt intellectualization. Like that's very mm-hmm. overt narcissistic, overtly racist intellectualization, right? Yeah. Uh, more of a covert one, let's say it's, a combination of saviorism and intellectualization is, um, but I need to use my white privilege because that's what POCs say. Mm -hmm. And that's what I read. And that's what I hear. So that's intellectualization is in, um, I'm taking in content, therefore it's true. Mm, Okay. And then you kind of had nailed me for perfectionism and my girlfriend who was like, sorry, sorry, sorry. What does that look like? I know that I, I I register with perfectionism. It's funny because I tell myself I'm not a perfectionist because I don't really, I'm not really competitive. Like whenever I participate in something competitive, I'm the one on the sidelines. It's like, at least I participated, like who cares who wins Mm -hmm. kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm usually in done is better than perfect. So it's interesting because um, I could see how with my image or me wanting to appear like I'm this, is that perfectionism or is that yeah. saviorism? So, you so that's, those? so when you said that I'm the person on the sidelines, just chilling and it doesn't cause, cause, cause you're comparing yourself again to the overt narcissist, right? So, so your kind of blind spot in that sense is you're perpetrating narcissism, but it's covert. So a lot of white people, when they, what it is, a lot of white people perpetrate covert racism because they don't see their own covert narcissism and their covert narcissism is straight up codependency. So it's like, essentially like, of course I recommend that you, you know, that you recover from, you know, your codependency. And, uh, I I've been there, done that with my own codependency. Um, and it is, um, the, the perfectionism aspect has to do with more of a covert need for perfection. This has mm-hmm. to do with reputation. We think of reputation. Yeah. This is anytime we're really worried about reputation. This has to do with perfectionism. That was the trigger word that I knew, ah, perfectionism, because this is, um, reputation. If you, if you actually look up later, like the, you or anyone listens, if you actually look up DSM criteria for narcissistic personality disorder, mind you, listen to me very carefully, everyone. Most of you do not have NPD. However, that's because the DSM needs to be updated as a spectrum. It's like way behind on the times. Okay. It needs to be updated. It doesn't, mm -mm. uh, NPD is more representative of overt narcissism. It's just that our problem is we haven't addressed covert, which is pretty much most of the narcissism that we express as people. And we call that connection and love, but it's covert. Um, 
so so it's like uh, perfectionism means that I can't make mistakes. I can't make mistakes or I'm going to be socially rejected. Um, I totally put that at the beginning. You're so right. Like Black Lives Matter, I was getting these like DMs, like, I'm surprised you haven't said something. And what was true for me, I was like, I don't know if I've collected enough information about the situation for me to speak up yet. Like I'm trying to collect information. Um, and, and even, and, and then I also felt, and I would love your opinion on this. Like, who cares what I think about this thing? That was another thing that came up was why does anybody care what I think? I'm just one person. Mm. What would you have to say to that? Is there like a narcissism to that? Like, I don't know. So, uh, when, so I just need a little bit of information. So, um, when you say that you didn't care what anybody, could you tell me a little bit more of the context or maybe you said it before? I just don't remember. Yeah. I was just getting a lot of like DMS, especially from podcast listeners who are like, I'm so shocked and disappointed that black lives matter movement. Oh Yes. We're going to get right. We're going to get right down to racist projection. Yeah. <laughs> perfect. We're going to get number five. We're going to get number five right here. Okay. <laughs> okay. I got those messages. Yes. And I'd love to see more about what yes. you're thinking. Of that. Mm-hmm. When I got those messages, what came up for me was I don't know enough information to even speak up. And I don't want to pollute the internet with like, and I don't know if that's me trying to intellectualize, but I was just like, I am just grabbing all of this information I'm seeing and reading people's posts and trying to Google on the news. Like I was just trying to understand it. And I just felt like, who am I to say anything? And even if I did educate myself, why does anybody care what I think? I'm just one person. That's the story I have. So I'm curious what you think about the person DMing me and my thought on it. Mm. Well, the person DMing you was reacting in a in a uh, overtly narcissistic way by shaming you, uh, because that's what they're told. Again, they watch. I, I guarantee to you that they follow influencers and mimic these things, um, because that's what a lot of white people do. They think um, I don't like you said. I don't want to be fragile. I don't want to be this. I don't want to be that. Um, which, you know, that's again, perfectionism. It's also intellectualization. It's again, based on reading content. So it's about etiquette too. That's another thing I want you to understand about perfectionism is that not only is it reputation or fear of social rejection, but it's also etiquette. It's like saying, if we want to be in someone's good graces, we are going to learn anti-racism etiquette. So this is what's taught by a lot of anti-racism influencers, right? And then if you break the rules of anti-racism, you're going to get socially rejected. And that's why you got your DM in the box because you were not following the rules of anti-racism and you're white and you're supposed to follow the rules. Otherwise you don't, you're going to get socially rejected and you're going to get judged and all that. All of that is very overtly narcissistic behavior. Okay. It's like cult-like. It's like, um, a lot of, for example, my coaching clients, uh, they were actually, many of them raised, um, in strict religious backgrounds and they initially learned how to give their power away in strict religious backgrounds. So they were like, we thought this was the way to get along. We thought this was the right thing. My gosh, like I was spiritually abused, right? I was used uh, in, in my religion that I follow. Um, and I couldn't question authority and I couldn't. So a lot of these influencers are not being questioned. I question them uh, and not in a persecutory way. That's not what I'm doing. I'm just saying I question it because it's just, it doesn't work. And I'm concerned about that. I'm like, mm, that's, that's spreading ignorance. It's spreading narcissism. We're not really looking at this as what it truly is. And, um, many people feel lost and they are lost. And many white people are confused because they're being told not to perform, but then they're being taught to perform. And then when they still get 
attacked and judged, but they're like, wait a minute. I followed all these rules. I read all these books. I went to these workshops. I did this. I did that. I'm following all the rules. How am I still a racist? Because it, because you can't treat mental illness by following rules. Otherwise I wouldn't be a therapist. Like if it was that easy, we wouldn't have therapy. We wouldn't have things like EMDR, brain spotting, you know, we wouldn't have these things. Um, I don't work with my patients and say, follow these rules. And this is how you're going to stop your codependency. Um, yeah. But I mean, even when you look at magazines, you can see that you'll, you'll, you'll buy a magazine and say, um, here are these five things you can do to set boundaries with people. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's kind of slow this up, slow back. Let's go slow. I'm like, wait a minute. My own patients know if they try to set boundaries with people and they're not physically, emotionally ready, they're going to have a panic attack. Mm-hmm. They're going to have a panic attack. So what I'm seeing is a lot of white people expected um, to suddenly have this deep solidarity with POC, a lot of these white people struggle to set boundaries with other white people, period. And then now you want to go and like advocate for POC you want. So in other words, what I'm trying to say here is that we got a lot of POC that even expect white people to be perfect in their allyship. And the thing is, is that like, what we want is earned, secured attachment relationships. That's what we, we need trust. We need to build trust among the races as opposed to follow a bunch of rules because we all know that trust can't be earned just by obedience, but that's exactly what is taught in society. That's a narcissistic overt thing. If you are obedient, we can trust you. <laughs> no, wow. like that doesn't work. <laughs> Crazy. Well, so tell me about projection. Like yeah. you, like, what do you, how do you define it for people listening? Yeah. Um, and then I also want to work through before you go racist rejection of whiteness and leadership. So what does it look like when people are practicing projection in this racist, anti-racist dynamic. Yeah. Um, this is when white people jump other white people if they don't follow the rules of anti-racism. So it's like, that's just an example. Like essentially it's like, um, I'm at that point, the addiction is expressed as, um, I'm going to now jump on other white people and that's solidarity. Um, we're going to hold them accountable with publicly humiliating them. Um, or, uh, damn those white people, aren't they so damn terrible? Then they're not, they're focusing more on the overt racist and they're not actually taking responsibility for their own covert racism and getting treatment. So this becomes a defense and a subconscious defense for not addressing their own racism. It's again, it's usually unintentional. It's not that people really do mean well, but they don't realize that they're just deflecting from actually holding space for their own racism. Um, that's, you know, their own addiction to exploiting POC typically in saviorism uh, online. So that's like, um, you know, that's, that's how that works. And how does, and is, does it have to be a white person on a white person? Cause what if the person messaging me was Persian or Mexican or whatever have you, does that really matter? It does because it's like a different drug. So for example, um, racism is exploiting another human being, uh, based on the color of one's skin, right. Or how they look phenotypically, right. As in phenotype for those who don't know, it's, it's how your physical features are. Right. Um, so for example, when we think of now we need to get into interpersonal racism versus institutional racism. So interpersonal racism is interpersonal addiction or interpersonal narcissism and institutional racism is literally, uh, laws, policies, things, um, 
that are that are put out there so that white people can continue to exploit POCs, such as imperialism, colonization, et cetera. They're all those financial and all the all the ways that BIPOC have been exploited all over the world. This is based on, the, you know, the white people addicted to exploiting their natural resources, for example, and um, it creates luxury and that wealth and luxury is self-soothing, which actually is a replacement for self-regulation, emotional regulation, right? That's what that is. That It's all an addiction, right? And so if a POC comes into your inbox and confronts you uh, based on racism, uh, they are at that moment very traumatized. They are exhibiting, uh, although at the same time with that trauma, they're exhibiting potentially narcissistic behavior because that's the way that they think they should handle it because what they want is justice. They want justice. They want accountability uh, because you as a white person, for example, may not have, you're probably going to have impunity. And that's part of white privilege is I don't actually have to have consequences for my racist behavior. So what, what POC do when they do that too, is they're, they're trying to hold you accountable, but they're doing it in a narcissistic way. You do need to be held accountable, but the way that you hold yourself accountable, at least within the work that I do is through recovery. Um, not by jumping another person or having a POC jump you. It has to do with, okay, you accountability means I need to deal with my addiction to exploiting other human beings that that's, and that's what I, that's what I need to be holding myself accountable to. So for example, saviorism is that rescuing addiction, right? Which is connected to codependency. Um, and, and that's, that's that. So it's like holding oneself accountable, accountable for one's addiction. That's accountability, um, versus, a you know, BIPOC coming in your inbox saying, um, you know, you need to get your stuff together. That, that, that person is frustrated because you don't, because you have impunity and there's no consequence for your behavior and they feel very disempowered. And they have very likely felt that time and time again from white people of I'm tired of being used as, as a, as a, you know, as, as the target of, of a white savior, I'm tired of that. So they're very burned out. They're very traumatized. They themselves need to go get treatment too. They need treatment for that. And, and mm. of course, within my field, many, many of us in the field that are, you know, that's why a lot of us, you know, um, well, I'm not me because I treat the white folks. I treat the, the perpetrators. I, I treat the narcissists, but, um, but the, many of my colleagues within the field are creating, of course, as you know, like directories, BLPOC directories, whatnot, POC directories to help POC get treatment for being the victims of racism. Uh, because that's key. That's huge. And I do believe that, um, I do believe that POC who have been the victims of racism, I do, I do believe that our country should, um, provide them free therapy. I do think that's a legit form of reparations, uh, mm-hmm. because they do need healing. I mean, as you know, Dr. Joy DeGruz says who wrote post-traumatic slave syndrome. I mean, no one ever thinks for a minute, like how much trauma have black people been through? Right. And so that's just like all intergenerational trauma, but white folks, when they act in racist ways, they themselves have in their white families, intergenerational trauma that gets projected onto POC. And again, a lot of that straight up is attachment wounds, intergenerational attachment wounds, which is an attachment disorder. And that attachment disorder becomes narcissism, which is an addiction to exploiting other human beings, uh, based on their identity. So in other words, this person did not come into your inbox to exploit you. 
for the most part, this person probably came in your inbox because they want to hold you accountable because this is how they've been taught uh, by people to hold you accountable. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And, and if you, if you could give advice to somebody who wants to speak up or be a part of the solution, what would that look like when you take narcissism out of the equation? What do you mean? Take narcissism out of the equation? Like, I feel like there's so many levels of narcissism that you're sharing in how people are relating to each other around Black Lives Matter, Mm -hmm. around racism and Mm anti-racism. I'm almost being stripped at this point of what can somebody do Mm -hmm. if they do want to speak up and they do want to share and they want to come from a clean energy Mm -hmm. and a clean state and not from Mm -hmm. a place of narcissism. What does it look like from a clean energy to be a part of the solution? Narcissism recovery, and in this case, racism recovery. And when I work with my patients and clients, I that's what I do. I I help them detox. That's what that looks like. So, and and I actually wrote a post about this on Instagram um, the other day about activism because a lot of people ask me, "Well, wait a minute, April. Like, we want to do activism, but it's very hard to do that when white people don't want to detox from saviorism. It's very hard. It's hard to detox from that saviorism, especially when you get the peer pressure, even from POC, to do it." So I said, okay, so if you jump into activism, but can't stop your racism, then you're contradicting yourself. Detox first, then recovery, and finally engage in activism, knowing full well that you are practicing what you preach. So that's the thing is that when you think of performative allyship, it means that white people are not practicing what they preach, although that is what's taught to them. So what I recommend is recovery, and that's why I do the work that I do. Beautiful. And I, and I, just as I'm closing out, when you think about racist rejection of whiteness or leadership, how can you show everybody listening those two final pillars in your work mm-hmm. of what it looks like? Yes. I can actually give you two great examples of the racist yes. rejection of whiteness. Um, one of them, believe it or not, are white Jewish Americans. Um, white Jew, I've worked with a lot of white Jewish Americans who try their best a lot of the time, believe it or not, to, re- especially if they're liberal to reject their whiteness. Um, a lot of white Jewish Americans try not to see themselves as Caucasian mm-hmm. because they experience what they have been both. And this is just legit. They've been both the victims of racism and they perpetrate racism. And so it's a very precarious situation for them. So many of them, what they do is they're very, because they have been the victims of racism with, let's say British folks or whatnot, you know, um, people with, you know, very, you know, white backgrounds, um, basically they're like, um, they basically go, we don't want to have anything to do with that because we are not them. Right. And that's why historically you'll see a lot of Jewish, white Jewish Americans hand in hand with black revolutionaries. You will see these people who are white Jews. Yes. And they give a lot of money and they do a lot of things, et cetera, et cetera. There are a lot of white Jews that were very supportive of James Baldwin's work, et cetera, et cetera. Why? Because they are actively trying to reject their whiteness because they also know what it is to be the victim of racism. However, they, they are not, they're not in Europe and they're in America. So basically they still have to hold space and realize the ways that they have uh, been taught to exploit uh, POC, right? Another one is Rachel Dolezal, as I talked about earlier. Rachel Dolezal, um, she, you know, if you watch the Netflix uh, documentary uh, with Rachel Dolezal, um, she was a white woman um, who pretended to be black. And uh, 
she literally, you know, changed the way her hair looks. She, she literally tried to look physically darker. Um, she absolutely rejected her whiteness. And she did that because growing up, her white parents adopted some black kids and, uh, they they were very violent and racist to their own adopted black children. And when Rachel grew up sawing the, uh, seeing this, she was like, I don't want to be white. You can tell. She's like, I don't want to have anything to do related to my parents and their whiteness. So she flat out literally rejected her whiteness and donned becoming black. So she literally erased her ethnicity publicly. And then eventually she got caught in this, right? So that was racist. So what? how is it racist? Because... Y'all need to see racism as when I say racism, it means you're using another human being based on their racial identity. She used the ethnic, the, the culture, ethnicity, etc., to soothe her own emotional issues with her parents, the trauma. She tried to do that. And that was racist because she's using black culture to soothe her emotional pain and numb that pain. And that's mm. racist, right? Finally, uh-huh. finally, we have racist leadership. Um, and the leadership is, like I said, the two examples. We have um, 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 Jane Elliott. We have Robin DiAngelo. They they actually do a lot of, remember I just taught you about the, the, the projection? They literally make their, their money by being overtly narcissistic to white people. They literally, uh-huh. yeah. Because, what does that mean to be narcissistic to white people? Tell me more. Well, they're narcissistic. They're, they they persecute them, but they themselves haven't recovered. So if you haven't recovered from your narcissism and then you're trying to get help people stop being narcissistic, then I mean, that's just not going to be effective because racism is a subtype of narcissism. It's a type of narcissism. So it's like, in other words, they them and you'll hear Robin D'Angelo say, um, you know, um, um, I haven't been able to stop my racism, but you know, I'm here to stop white people. What? So you, so you can't stop your addiction to, you know, exploiting POC because essentially exploiting the cause, right? You haven't been able to stop your addiction because you're trying to save them too by bashing white people. You haven't stopped that yet. You haven't achieved recovery, but now you're going to write books and make a bunch of money and tell white people, I can't stop my racism, but I can help you stop your racism. Okay. That, that, that just doesn't work. That's, that's ineffective. You see, that's not leadership. That's hypocrisy and performance. And so that's what Robin D'Angelo and Jane Elliott do. They perform. That's exactly what they do. And they're very good at leading, oh my God, white fragility, Jesus. <laughs> I mean, that book just like, that's like the Bible of saviorism for white people. Like I yeah. literally couldn't even finish the first couple of chapters. I put that, I'm just going to say it. I put that shit down so quick. Oh my God. I was like, this is totally not trauma informed. This is totally not going to help people. Oh my gosh. I just, I don't care how famous, you know, I have lots of people. Well, April just did, you know, even, oh my God, even black folks say, April, why for Julie? I'm so glad Robin. Yeah. No, that's not going to help white people. It, it well, this, literally will do some saviorism. This brings me to my final question. And I promise my actual final one, I think is because <laughs> okay. you're so good. I'm just that's like, okay. this is funny. It's okay. what does it look like for a white person like me or anybody listening who wants to be integrated and make an impact beyond healing their narcissism? So mm-hmm. let's say that we evaluate, we heal it, and we still, we want to participate from a clean energy of yeah. being a better part of the solution. What are some suggestions you have or thoughts that we should be having in our mind as we're participating in a better world as a whole and a more diverse world? So 
what you want, <laughs> so I'm going to call you on this. What you want is a rule. I'm not going to give you a rule, but what I will tell you is this. Um, in other words, you're like, what steps can we take? So this, yeah, I love that. so that's, that's perfectionistic. And those are the steps, right? So this mm. is what I'm going to tell you when we do think of, I want you, I want you, I want to reframe it and, and, and maybe this might help. So like if we were, if, if white people recover from their racism and they end their narcissism addiction to exploiting POC, right? If they do that, just like when we think of, let's say we have a healthy relationship, right? With another human being, no matter what race they are. Um, notice in that example where you said, you know what, I have this friend of mine and we're together, like we're together in this little, little group together and she has a history of trauma and, you know, um, there are certain things that she's, it's still very triggering for her. And I am not going to do X, Y, Z, like you said, because this triggers her. And I go, good for you. That was respecting her boundaries. And that was earned secured attachment. But did you read, did, but did you need to read a book to do that? Mm. Did you need to did follow I... steps to do that? No, no, because what you did, that was organic. So when you mm. care about someone, so in other words, I am telling you that the way to deal with this is recovery because when you recover, the real deal is when you recover, all of the good stuff that's coming is organic. That means that white people are actually going to be in true solidarity because they actually have earned secured attached relationships with, you know, with POC, which means that, um, which means that essentially it's not kicking into saviorism. But again, POC, they're listening. You also need to heal from the trauma of racism and, and your own narcissism. Uh, because if you expect these white people to save you, you're, you're giving, you're feeding into their narcissistic supply. So don't do that. that that's not going to end racism. Um, white people need to recover from their addiction to exploiting POC. So when you achieve recovery, um, Ashley, um, what's going to happen is that, uh, you're going to be very honest about your, you're not all of the ways in which you deceive yourself are going to be eliminated. You will have sobriety. You will not kick into saviorism. Your codependency will be recovered and all the goodness that comes out, no matter what it is in activism is going to be clean. Uh, it's going to be organic because it's healthy because it's rooted in the value of earned, secured, attached relationships. And so that's the thing. So we need a, we need to address narcissism on the whole in the world, but specifically with racism. When I work with people in racism recovery, it is, it is actually the entrance to healing all forms of narcissism, all of my, my white coaching clients and my patients, uh, with my patients, I'm treating their codependency a lot of the time, which again, goes back to their traumas from their childhood. Um, and then with my coaching clients, they're often um, getting therapy externally um, and also getting psychoeducation because right now you're getting a lot of psychoeducation from me. You're basically getting like the stuff that's going to be in my book, <laughs> like what, before the book. That's why well, my mouth keeps on going and it seems unlimited because it's going to be a book. <laughs> Yeah. No, thank God for that. I think it's going to be amazing. And, and I can't wait for, I, I would love for you to reach out and send me the book so I can support you with it. And I'm just so glad that we had you on the podcast. I really, really, really appreciate a body of work and the way that you're creating it and the work that you're doing and where can everybody continue to learn from you and follow you until your book comes out? Yeah. Feel free to uh, come over to Racism Recovery Center on Instagram. Or you can go to my website, racismrecoverycenter.com. Actually, on um, on Instagram, uh, all white people can participate.
participate in the first, actually on the first 90 days of my coaching program for free. Um, you just got to go to my highlights section right now. Um, I have the first month uploaded and I'm getting ready to start month two. Um, by the end of the 90 days, you will absolutely be able to see that narcissism very clearly. Just know that you're going to experience a lot of cognitive dissonance. It is going to be uncomfortable. Um, it is a part of the detox process. Um, and, um, but it is very insightful. And if you're ready to, if you really value honesty and you're really a truth seeker, um, it's really going to help you on so many levels. This work that I do is not meant to save POC. This work is meant to heal the world. Thank you again for being here. All right. Thank you. Hey, U-Turners, so sorry for the quick interruption, but if you're anything like me working from home, this quarantine has got you craving some structure, and I have gotten so much out of committing to a morning routine. And for me, that's looked like burning some Palo Santo every morning, sipping some coffee while I'm journaling, and of course, making my daily protein shake with Organifi's vanilla protein powder. I just put a scoop of their vanilla protein, frozen organic strawberries, half a frozen banana and coconut milk into the blender, and boom, that little candy addicted five-year-old living inside of me gets so happy feeling like she started her work day with what tastes like a vanilla milkshake with strawberries in it. So if you follow me on the gram, you know that even when I try to eat healthy, I tend to have little snack accidents, and that's why I am so grateful that Organifi is now sponsoring the U-Turn podcast. It is such a milestone for us to have them supporting the show, and I'm pretty sure that without their super healthy protein powder, I'd be lacking in my morning routine. So if you're looking for some consistency, and some structure in your diet. I'm really in love with their products, which is why we wanted to get you hooked up with a discount when you go to Organifi.com slash U-Turn. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com backslash Y-O-U-T-U-R-N for 15% off. Now let's get back to the episode. I'm so excited to bring a professor onto the show because I know that the Black Lives Matter movement has created, I think, a lot of confusion around history and a lot of discourse around what did happen in history, how is history taught and told in the United States. And I just thought it would be so empowering to bring on a professor. So I wanted to bring Brenda Elaine Stevenson onto the show. She is the Nickel Family Endowed Chair in the Department of History and a professor of African-American studies at UCLA. So as a social historian, she focuses on gender, race, family, and social conflict in America obviously all very useful topics. Um, and she even has a personal website, drbrendastevenson.com. Um, thank you so much for coming onto the show and, and talking to us about the Black Lives Matter movement and just Black history in general. It, it means so much. You are certainly welcome. I wanted to get your take on like, what are some things um, in history, whether it's around like slavery or mortgages that can explain why the black community would feel that there's still racism today? Because I think a lot of people don't grasp how much that is still happening. Well, I think um, that the history of slavery, first of all, is a very long one in terms of our of our national history. And so even if we saw in the colonial period, you know, from 1619 until 1865, the slavery was legal. 
pretty much so throughout, you know, that long period of our history. So it hasn't been that long since slavery has ended. That's first and foremost. And there have been many generations more of Black people living in this country who were enslaved than Black people who were free. So that's just a reality, okay? Um, I think secondarily, what people don't understand is that when slavery ended, it did not end really the economic or social conditions of enslaved people for the most part. Um, And so so because of Jim Crow, which, you know, crept in very soon after slavery ended, and that is legal segregation or, or commonly um, used segregation acts, um, black people were still kept out of the economy, were still um, residentially um, segregated, were still not allowed to have, you know, first rate educations, um, those kinds of things. And they had lingering impact because if you look well into the 20th century, for example, the majority of black male household heads were, you know, um, either day laborers or were sharecroppers. Um, the majority of black females were domestic workers or um, in some lower um, level employment like that. Um, If you look at education, you will see that Black people were kept out of research-wide universities for the most part into the end of the 1960s. Um, And so, you know, in terms of housing, segregation um, continued for for residential housing well into past the middle of the 20th century and even still exists to a certain extent today. When I went to purchase my house in Los Angeles, there was still residential um, segregation. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that means, residential segregation? When I'm speaking about this, is there a way that you find it to be more politically correct? Curious how to even reference the Black community in a way that feels politically correct to you. Well, I think that, you know, saying the Black community is politically correct. Our community is very diverse. But in terms of the way in which we are seen by people outside of the community, it typically does mean the Black community at large. Got it. Okay. Well, so I'm thinking of a couple friends I have, Black women and their parents who were born in the 50s. And that means that they were growing up in a time where there was some sort of residential segregation or discrimination. Can you paint a picture of what that really meant or how that looked in the housing market? Well, what it looks like in the housing market is that um, the amount of housing that's available for various communities it's limited. So there are certain communities that set aside or put aside for, you know, European Americans, a, a certain communities spatially or geospatially um, that are put aside for Latinx people, certain for African Americans, certain for, you know, immigrants, um, you know, etc. And so what happened in Los Angeles, for example, is that while there was a great growth in the African American community um, in terms of actual numbers of people between the world and particularly after World War II or during World War II, uh, when African Americans came to California for the to participate in the defense industry, there wasn't very much housing available in those spaces that had been designated by you know the elite within the society. That is the political and the economic. They're often the same uh, elite within the society where African Americans could actually live. So then you would have a lot of crowding within those neighborhoods. Okay. So I want to understand, like I, whenever I think about, and I know that this is probably just privilege or a lack of education on my side, but when I think about housing, my mindset and what I grew up in was anybody can buy a house anywhere. 
um, if you have the money. And so that's absolutely not correct, though, in terms of the African-American. Um, that's what I want to understand, um, because there were covenants that were put in residential covenants that were put in place that were you know, racially specific. No people, Negro people, for example, no colored peoples, no immigrants, etc., could move into this particular neighborhood. First and foremost, secondarily, banks were invested who were invested in mortgages would not give people of color. Black people in particular, a mortgage for particular neighborhoods. So if you wanted a mortgage, you would have to buy in the neighborhood that the banks had decided was a Black neighborhood. Got it. So the banks were also highly involved in the enforcement of the kind of like racial segregation that happened in real estate and and where people live and the the creation of communities. Yes, and also the insurance um, companies. Insurance companies would not insure you to purchase a home in a particular kind of neighborhood. But that worked both ways. It also worked so that the neighborhoods that you could purchase in, that you were given mortgages for, that you could get insured in, those that because of that divide, that racial divide, those neighborhoods were then considered criminal. They were also considered, because the large majority to people were black people who were criminalized, but they also were considered then, you know, cheap neighborhoods. That the mortgage rates, the, the property value was lower. So your your return on your investment was going to be smaller mm-hmm. um, than if you had bought in another neighborhood where that was predominantly white or that was in some way privileged in terms of this is a good neighborhood to live in with good schools. Of course, then, because um, educational expenses are paid through the tax base, depending on where you live, you will have wealthier people living in one neighborhood that tended to be white because of the placement of white people in the economy and um, lower taxes um, for African-American communities because we tended to be placed lower in the economy. And so that then impacted the, the kinds of education we received in your neighborhood, what your schools had to offer in terms of the kinds of courses, foreign languages, um, mm. internships, computers, et cetera, et cetera. So it does have a, a kind of comprehensive negative impact um, on one's community, on one's family, on even the individual um, to be placed in a segregated um, and unprivileged place within society. Wow, that's fascinating. So it's like the system as a whole with banks, with mortgages, and even with the cities of how lines were drawn of where communities would be permitted was going on until the 1960s. So that would mean that... I just want to, I bought my house in the 1990s. Okay. And, and what did, and what was it that you faced? Cause you were saying that you had faced some le- level of like, whether it was discrimination or I- I'm curious to understand in the nineties, what was going on? Because I think this is really powerful for people to understand. Like this is not decades and decades ago. This is still happening. Oh, it's um, still happening. As well, when, when we went to purchase our house in the mid 1990s, uh, we were looking in particular parts of Los Angeles, but we went to a neighborhood that was not known as predominantly black. 
Okay. Um, it was known, it was really a, a neighborhood that had other kinds of racial and ethnic groups living in it. And we went to a particular house and there was a real, the real estate agent was there and we rang the doorbell. No one opened the door and we kind of backed back and the real estate agent just sat in the window. We could no. see him with his arms crossed across his chest and shaking oh. his head. No. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. And, and is that a normal occurrence that you've seen in your life, that that kind of discrimination? Like, I, I always, I've been asking my friends, you know, like my black friends as of recent, because one of my my closest, my my best friend, he's a bohemian, he's from the Bahamas. And I asked him, I'm like, Barry, are you experiencing racism in that way all, all the time? And he said it wasn't all the time, but that these sorts of things have happened to him. Like, how often do you encounter that in today's world or even just growing up? Well, I think you encounter it a lot in today's world. I mean, even in my neighborhood, and I live in Baldwin Hills, you know, in terms of it's, it's becoming a neighborhood that's, that's changing in terms of the people who reside here. But I've heard of, you know, I've known Black people who have tried to purchase houses in my neighborhood, and realtors would not sell to them you know, um, who are African-American, but chose to sell to European-Americans instead who would not, you know, um, would not honor their bids and things like that. So it still does happen um, in society. It happens. That was so interesting because uh, a couple of weeks ago or last week, there was a whole splash about in the news about banking while black. And that was so familiar to my husband and I, who have both had kind of many meltdowns in the bank. So uh, we, uh, when we first moved here, we lived in Westwood, uh, which is predominantly white. And, you know, it's, uh, it's where the college, which the university is located. And it was without fail, I would go into the bank to, you know, to have for my uh, monthly check before I had a national de- deposited. And there was this one woman I would always get. I don't know why. I was just in line and I would end up with her and she would always have a problem. She didn't want to accept my ID. She didn't want to think that this was my check. I mean, there was always a problem. So I remember one time I went in and I was just not going to have it. And so she ended up again being my person. And I said, I want to speak to your manager right away before she she even started working on me as soon as I got to her counter. And I said to the manager, she says, yes, my help you? And I said, yes, I want someone else to handle me. Because whenever I come here, she has a problem with me. She will not cash my checks without showing I don't innumerable IDs. And I am not having that today. And the woman was so upset that I had said that. And, you know, but I thought, you know, I can't do this another time. I cannot go through this. So I eventually changed my branch from Westwood to the branch in Beverly, in Baldwin Hills, where I live. Never had a problem after that, you know. And so, um, you know, this is so familiar to me, you know, mm-hmm. this, um, this kind of thing happens to people all the time. People don't expect African-Americans to have a certain position or to make a certain income. And if that happens, then there's something wrong here. Mm-hmm. And I I also want to understand something that you had talked about, which is like a whole different lens on this was just like socioeconomic status, um, educational funding, and also like even um, criminal activity, like the prison system. I'm curious what your take is on any of these topics as it relates to um, racism existing right now and and what is going on with the numbers. Well, I think that there's a lot of energy being placed now towards the criminal justice system. 
Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of the focus is on, you know, the numbers of people who are incarcerated, um, the treatment on the street by or in their in communities by, you know, police. Um, how the, the sentencing, how long the sentences are for for people of color versus people um, who are European American, etc. So there is a lot of emphasis on that, and for good reason. I mean, you look; the numbers are completely convincing. You can see that there is an outrageously large proportion of um, African Americans, men and women, boys and girls, who are incarcerated. Um, in our society, in proportion to the number of people in the in our society, and so, and it also, you will find that it's very difficult for judges and for juries to to see victimhood with regard to African American, even Af- young African Americans, and so, you know, what do you mean by that? See victimhood. Well, for example, I wrote a book on Latasha Harlins, who was killed in 1991 uh, in mm-hmm. a Korean shop. And then she was the, the shopkeeper was found guilty of voluntary manslaughter. And the probation officer had recommended the maximum sentence of 16 years because the shopkeeper did not show any remorse for what she had done. And the judge in the case decided that this woman des- deserved no jail time. Was wow. and that indeed it was the girl's fault that she was killed, um, and so that she had kind of dragged this woman into trouble, etc. And so, and you see that happening over and over again, and it's so it's not just you know the and I'm, this is not to to take away from the causes of these people um, that are killed by the police. It is also those people who, when they get to court, are treated differentially are treated as if they are, you know, career criminals, as if they are real threats to society. Um, And so even the people who are killed, um, not by the police, but killed by average citizens who are not African-American, for example, they don't, those persons who have killed them or assaulted them don't get the same um, kinds of heavy sentences that African-Americans get if they were to kill or harm someone outside of their community. And so we see that happening as well. And we see it playing out when, you know, people kill African-Americans and um, like George Zimmerman, for example, in the Trayvon Martin case, and the jury does size, no, he's not guilty. Uh, or, you know, in Latasha Holland's case, when the judge decides, no, she should not get any jail time. She's not, har- you know, she doesn't propose any harm to the society. That is the woman who killed her. Uh, or when, you know, special prosecutors decide, for example, in the case of Michael Brown, that no, this guy should not even be tried for this case. You know, and it goes on and on and on. And it's all aspects of the criminal justice system. So we focus on the police because the police per woman or man is who you see on the street into your communities. They're the ones that are pulling you over, you know, stopping you when you walk out of a building or whatever. But there is an entire system standing behind and on the shoulders of these police people who are expecting them to behave in this kind of way uh, and who don't punish them if they do and oftentimes reward them if they do. So, you know, when people say it's systemic, systemic it is the system. It's not just the policemen. It's not just a few bad actors. It's this entire level, you know, each level, there's a system of bias um, in place that 
allows it to work this way and to work this way over the centuries, not just the years or the decades or the weeks or the months, but over the centuries. Yes. And it's so refreshing to have you on here. Cause like deep inside of me is basically just a student. And I swear to God, if I won the lottery, I would just be taking your classes all day. <laughs> I just find this so fascinating. And I was just looking at Pew research statistics and I was hoping you could kind of pick like, tell me what story you're seeing beyond the statistics. So um, it was showing the percent of the population that is, you know, people who are black, people who are white, people are Hispanic, and the percent of the prison population. So it was saying 12% of the U.S. population is black, but 33% of the prison population is black. And then you have 63% of the U.S. population that is white and only 30% of the prison population that's white. And so, um, and then I could get into Hispanic and different minorities. I'm, I'm curious, like, what do you see behind these statistics or what, or what are people not getting? Because I think sometimes the numbers aren't really painting the true story of, of what's going on here. Well, I think what we see is, uh, you know, a system that does not represent society. It does not represent the people who are in the society. And so we have to start with, you know, that. And then why is that? Uh, one of the things we talked about early on was about the ways in which black people um, have been, we have been segregated residentially. And in terms of businesses and all of that, well, that along with that segregation also came extra surveillance by the police, over surveillance by the police in those particular communities. So the, the, you know, the opportunity for police to stop you for petty things, for things that did not really matter. I mean, really didn't matter. And I'm not a person who does not believe in law and order because I do. All right. But in terms of, you know, if, if you, for example, you um, no no right turn on red. Okay. Mm -hmm. Somebody stops. They look, it's, they turn right. Okay. If that happens in my community, you're probably going to get pulled over. All right. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of policemen on the street who are watching the traffic. If that happens, and I've seen it happen so much in West LA, in, you know, Westwood, et cetera, you're not going to get pulled over. Um, and if you get pulled over, you're probably going to be African-American or Latinx. You're probably not going to be a European-American who does it. Um, and so there's a kind of extra surveillance that takes place. There's a kind of extra scrutiny that takes place of Black behavior. And we see this happening not just with the police, but also with the quote-unquote average white citizen. You know, besides mm -hmm. that, this black person doesn't deserve to be black. It's this black person here. I don't have black people who live in my neighborhood, and therefore they call the police. You know, wow. or, you know, why is this black child selling lemonade on my street or in the park? They don't have a permit to do that, so they call the police. So, you know, this extra surveillance that black people get, that Latinx people get, that indigenous people get, you know, uh, is something that plays out in terms of the numbers of arrests. So then I, have a, I have a question about yeah. that just because I, so my background, um, I worked in the government national security, which is like the most, I worked at the Pentagon, which is like the most masculine institution with, so here's what I learned. And I don't know if this context has anything to do with this. I'm curious if you can draw the link. What I learned is when socioeconomic status is, um, undermined. So like, for example, in Afghanistan, the Taliban is usually rising because there's groups that will pay them and they need money to survive. And so, so it's like that poverty that creates 
criminal activity in, in our perception. Um, is there something around the socioeconomic disadvantage that you think explains any legitimate rise for crime? Or do you think it's outright that these neighborhoods are, have extra surveillance literally out of the racist mindset that, you know, th- these are black people and we need to monitor this neighborhood more heavily. And obviously if you have 10 cops in a black neighborhood, there's going to be 10 times more tickets than when you have one white, one cop in a white neighborhood, for example, like, is there anything around socioeconomic disadvantage and you thinking that that would trigger more crime? Because I, when I take a look at it and I remove color from the equation, I think to myself, okay, well, if I don't have any money, I'm going to be more likely to steal because I need food on my table. Um, like, do you have any thought on that? Am I being limited in my perception of no, how that would not be limited in perception? I think that indeed, you know, crime does happen in the black community, and the crime and and black people commit crimes, and uh, some of those crimes are property based crimes, and they're they're definitely related to where we are placed in the economy, which is you know um, we're very low in terms of um, economic um, the, the, our place within the economy. Uh, but what I am, and you, but you'll find that in every community. All right. So yeah. you'll find it in Latinx communities. You'll find it in white communities. You will find it in Asian American communities that you will find wherever you find poor people, regardless of their race, you're going to have crime. You're going to have property-based crimes in particular. So you will see that. But the differences really come if we look at other kinds of crimes. For example, if we look at um, which is also in some ways related to uh, places in the economy. We look at the drugs, okay, and the selling and the manufacturing of drugs. And we have a long history in our, uh, in, in, since, you know, since it's actually been covered or um, by the FBI, is looking at these statistics. And there are many more uh, European Americans who are invested and involved in the production of, you know, um, drugs that are used within society uh, than African Americans. And But African Americans are much more likely to get arrested are much more likely to um, be convicted and are much more likely to get longer sentences than you would find um, in uh, European American communities. And so, um, so, so what I'm saying is that what we're both saying is correct, which is yeah. that there is um, a racialized element mm-hmm. to the statistics that you see with regard to the numbers of black people who are incarcerated and there is also an economic piece to it as well. And the, and the two kind of overlap and intersect with one another. So I often get people writing to me. For example, I just got a complaint from somebody who wrote me a letter to actually sent a, a snail mail letter to me um, from the Deep South and said, I saw you on the news and you were talking about, you know, how white people kill black people. Well, black people kill black people. But and that's correct. But if that's in every neighborhood, that's in every community, the most black people are killed by black people. The most white people are killed by white people. The most Latinx people are killed by Latinx people. And the most um, Asian, Asian American people are killed by Asian, Asian American people. So it's not 
something that's specific to the black community that there's black on black crime. If you, whatever communities there are, the majority of that crime against people in that community is committed by people in that community. African-Americans are not unusual in that way. Right. And I'm also reading some statistics here where it says people living in households in the U.S. that have an income level below the federal poverty threshold have more than double the rates of violent victimization compared to individuals in high income households. So, I mean, you know, womp womp, like no surprise there. If you're below the poverty line, you're you're more likely to be around crime or having committed one, whatever have you. And I was also reading that um, when it, when you look at the poverty amounts in the United States, 25% of um, the population that is the most poor is Native American. And then right. second to that is the Black community at 20.8%, so 21%. Yeah. Um, but I also want to say that if you're yeah, middle class, if, you're, if you are European American, middle class, uh, you're much more likely not there might there will be violence within your household and within in your community, but the arrest rates um, are going to be a lot less for that. You know, people I had colleagues to tell me, oh, my son was caught tagging, and we mm-hmm. went in, and this is a friend of mine who felt comfortable saying this, and we kind of used our white privilege and said, well, you know, he comes from a good family, and we'll make sure it doesn't happen again. And their son walked right out of the police station. Wow, 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 wow. He said this to me. This is not a secondhand story, you know? And so, and he says, oh my God, if my child had been black, I don't even know what will happen. Well, I do, (laughs) you know? I do, unfortunately. And people know that. I mean, people won't tell you that. And this, again, is a very close friend of mine, but people won't tell you, but that's true. You know, somebody gets called and, you know, and, and they're, they've done this they're you know they found drugs and or somebody said that i was over there and they they had drugs on the table or whatever the the, the ability you know whether or not it's a, in an african-american community or a household versus a european-american one household whether or not it's a latinx household versus you know um some wealthy person or what it's it's going to make all the difference the other thing that's going to happen too is that middle-class people, and this is black middle-class or Asian-American, whatever, they're going to have the money to go um, into, you know, the court system and have a good lawyer to um, uh, to have the charges reduced, to have um, a good defense, uh, to have the charges dropped, you know, those kinds of things to move it from uh, not so the person will be charged as, a, as an adult, but charged as a juvenile instead, and then have it the, the record sealed afterwards so all those things can be done and are done, you know, um, depending on your uh, your race or ethnic background and your and your class status and your educational status and you know all that kind of stuff too. So, you know, there are many quirky things that happen um, in our criminal justice system, and some of them are for the good and some of them are not. And so it's very uplifting for me to see that people are really now beginning to unwrap, uncover the things that, you know, will mean disproportionate um, negative impact on individuals and communities and, and large groups. Um, you know, really looking very carefully at that and trying to get some control over that. I have such a question for you around action, like what to do about this. After George Floyd's death, um, 
there was so much on social media and I'm not very heavy on Instagram, even though I have like some sort of engagement going on there, but I just saw so much. And I also had a lot of people reach out to me, um, and they were disappointed. I hadn't released an episode yet on the topic. It was happening live that week. And I was, um, you know, overwhelmed and, and didn't really know how to contribute. Didn't want to say something without any education behind me. I'm curious, like, can you kind of shed light on these terms of like white fragility and what it means to you? Or do you have any thought on these terms that I've been hearing a lot more of? Well, there's a lot that's been, that's been talked about with regard to white, white fragility. And I think it's, um, it, it deals with the ways in which white, um, white Americans, uh, European Americans in our country feel as if the finger is being pointed at them all the time as being, you know, this wicked, evil group of people who are oppressing other, you know, vulnerable groups of people. And, um, so it, it has to do with how, and now there's come some defense of that. And, you, you know, you've got cancel culture has become like the big catch word now. It means that you're going back and looking at history and, and that you are placing 21st century um, standards, moral and ethical um, standards on events which happened in the past and saying that those events or those people who are involved in those events were bad people and therefore they should not be recognized for um, the contributions that they made in the past within the context of their lives and what where society was at the time. I believe that's what people mean when they say, you know, cancel culture. I'm from the South. I'm from Virginia. Um, I, I spent a lot of time in Richmond, um, Virginia. I lived on Monument Avenue with the Robert E. Lee Monument and, mm. you know, the Andrew um, Jackson Johnson Monument and all that stuff. So um, I grew up in a small town in the South that had a big Confederate monument right in the middle of downtown. Uh, and so I do know the kind, and, and, and all of this to say, I'm saying all of this to say that there's been, um, the people have taken over those monuments in my hometown. And also, of course, we've seen it on Monument Avenue with Robert E. Lee's statue and George Floyd's face painted on and then John Lewis's face painted on it. So I think that's what people mean when people, you know, publicly criticize um, Columbus or people uh, publicly criticize George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or, you know, and people feel like they're denigrating their contribution as quote unquote Americans because we're judging them by our standards today um, and not by the standards of their day. So, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've even had historians um, who are good friends of mine get a bit hysterical about the notion of erasing history. Wow. You know, and I had to reassure them history is not erased. It's being challenged. I think it's being, it's, you know, um, this is a moment in history, too, when people looked back 300 years or 200 years and says, wow, those people really weren't doing the right thing as far as we're concerned. So that's a part of history, too. You know, mm-hmm. um, and so I don't fear, um, you know, this kind of cancel culture because, you you know, there's no blotting out of George Washington. There's no blotting out of Thomas Jefferson and there's not even any blotting out of Christopher Columbus. You know, um, yeah. it's in the no matter how many women he raped with his people. It's like, well, you know, there's still statues have been up there for a really long time. Um, yeah. Even if the statues are all taken down. 
that is yeah. in the history books. I mean, it's been recorded. That rec- that's not people are not going to go back and purge them out of books that were published in 1950 or 1940. Mm-hmm. You might not spend as much time talking about them in a textbook that comes out in, in 2025. But George Washington is still going to be first president of the United States. Thomas Jefferson is still going to be the author of the Declaration of Independence. Columbus is still going to wrongfully be attributed because he wasn't given that attribution for 500 years as quote unquote discovering the Americas. So there is going to be mention of all these people. It's going to continue. So I don't know why people are so upset with it, but I but I realize I'm on the other side of that. Yeah, you're I'm looking at the other side of the group that never gets attributed with anything um, positive. So, you know, yeah. so I don't have the same angst about it. That's another question I have for you is like, I constantly hear that history is told in America, in the American school system, in a very skewed way. I'm, I'm curious what your perspective is on that. Well, it's, I know. That. I mean, I think we yeah. the history we tell reflects who we are and reflects the society and the culture in which we live in. And so, you know, again, I grew up in the South, and so you know, history was taught in a particular kind of way, particularly this, around the Civil War and slavery and and all of that. That e- even today, people don't teach in that kind of way. But in some places. And I've seen this because there's been, you know, people have shown, for example, what the textbook looks like in California on a particular subject versus the textbook in Texas on a particular subject. It's, it's this kind of response to this idea of cancel culture is, is I think it's pretty natural, you know, that people fear that. Um, but they, people also have to realize that with the culture that you um, hold up high um, comes a privileging of the people who are part of that culture, all right? And a dismissal of people who are not. And I think that people have to realize that. That's why people, you know, take down the Columbus statue. That's why people take down the Robert E. Lee statue. Because with the Columbus statue, you are saying, oh, you know, there was this whole core of European explorers. And, you know, as a result of it, we have, you know, the Americas develop in a particular kind of way with European influences. Okay. So if you're a European American person, you think, oh, what's wrong with Columbus? If you're an indigenous person and 90% of the, your population died um, within 100 years as a result of this contact from Europe, you don't want to see it, Columbus. Okay. You don't want to see him, um, you know, put up on high and there's a Columbus Day and big Columbus Day parades. You know, it's so interesting to hear you talk about this because I studied history in the United States and then I went abroad to France. And because I worked in counterterrorism, Middle Eastern history in the United States was told through the lens of a pro Israel approach. Like, exactly, definitely. You know, and then you go to France. And, and all of the history is like, it's Israel's fault. Right. <laughs> and it was just so interesting because I took my advanced history courses in France, in French, in France. Right. And it was just like, oh, oh damn. Like, right. this is a new I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like, oh, I didn't know that, that was their fault. Oh, no, but it's not. It's their fault. Oh, my God. Right, yeah. And then there's another thing that I saw where I, my dad's Jewish. So I've kind of grown up with my mom being Christian, my dad being Jewish. And mm-hmm. my, some of my dad's family was. Um, killed in Germany in the Holocaust. Wow. And so, yeah. And so I ended I'm sorry up, for, I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you. You know, it's so interesting because I feel so like removed from that, I guess, side of the family, but I do feel so curious about that culture. And 
you know, I went to Israel for birthright. Um, Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah, it was an amazing experience. I had no idea. I mean, obviously, when you're like a 20 something and people tell you you get a free trip, you're not really thinking like there's a spiritual, religious, educational purpose. You're just like, I'm going for a free trip. Right. And and much to my surprise, it was like this one of the most incredible educational experiences I ever had. Mm -hmm. But what was so profound for me was I was watching Sesame Street in Jerusalem and um, I don't speak Hebrew, but I do have skills around Arabic. Mm -hmm. And I was noticing the dialogue with Big Bird on that version of Sesame Street. And it was, um, they were showing us what they were watching in Gaza because there's such a divide with Gaza and, and Israel right? and you know, Palestinians versus Israelis and, and this whole historical tension. And on the Palestinian side of things, Sesame street was having big birds say like, do you know what you do when you see a Jewish person? And then the other character was like, you kill them. And so oh my God, it, it's also really interesting to remember that history is not just textbooks, but also just like, entertainment propaganda. I, I say that all the time. It is the media drives our notion of history. It yeah. really, really does. Whether it's, you know, the big screen, the small screen, the tiny screen, which is the phone, you know, yeah. media, yeah. really songs, cartoons, body you know, image, you know, exactly. Reality TV. I mean, it all drives our notion of what people are like. And, um, and who's our enemy and who's our ally and, um, and how that developed over time or was shaped over time. So I have a very controversial question for you then about this, which is like, um, one of the things I learned in history was like fascist language of like, you're with us or you're against us, Mm -hmm. you know? Right. And I, I picked up on a lot of that in the black lives matter movement on social media Mm -hmm. of either, either you're anti-racist or you're racist. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious what, what insight can you shed on that for people who have heard that? Because I know that that was very common language. And I just remember growing up and taking history classes and, and that was like a big no, no in language of like, you're either on this side or that side. So what can you share about that? Or what's your opinion or take on it? Well, I think first of all, that black lives matter is a lot more inclusive than that. So people who sometimes um, are associated with being in a protest is put on by Black Lives Matter because it not necessarily are a part of Black Lives Matter. Uh, one of the things I found very interesting about this last spate of protests, social justice protests, is that people began to think that Black Lives Matter controlled all the protests for, that were on the street. So we go from Black Lives Matter at the time of Trayvon Martin or um, um, Brown, Michael Brown, as being very marginalized in terms of his impact, and then to now having Black Lives Matter is this huge umbrella uh, where it's kind of every person on the street falls underneath it. So I, I just want to, you know, um, be clear about this person could have identified themselves as being Black Lives Matter, um, but not necessarily was. But along with that, too, you will always find in protest movements uh, some of that some of that element. You'll find a diversity of approaches, a, a diversity of mandates. Um, you know, for example, uh, if we look at the civil rights movement, you'll see people who were nonviolent and the people who said, we're defensive, we're going to defend ourselves. You know, uh, you will find people who say, you know, uh, that the Congress of Racial um, Equality, that's, um, that's 
that's very much integrated. And then you'll find people who are, who are separatists. So you're going to find, um, you know, protests where people are, you know, can be very exclusive. And then you're going to have protests where people are very inclusive. And so that all kind of goes into a movement. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's not, I'm not surprised by that at all. And what have you found with protesting? Because to me, as a history major, one of the fundamentals I learned is that protests have changed the course of history and have changed legislation. And there's a lot of judgment because people would judge people who were rioting and um, they would, it would, it would skew the vision that they had around Black Lives Matter. They would have a skewed judgment on uh, protesters as a whole. Um, like, are there any movements in history that you just want to shed light on that are rooted in protesting based on their success? The American Revolution. <laughs> the American yeah. Revolution is based on protest. The whole damn revolution. I love that. I was hoping you'd come down strong with something good. <laughs> no, no our, the American Revolution is based on protests against um, British tyranny. Yeah, no taxation without representation. There we go. Damn, we have it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, I just... I love your, I love hearing you through this lens. And I I guess where I'm left on this episode is just to ask you from an action standpoint. Um, I felt, and and again, I would love for you to correct me on if this is white fragility, but I felt, you know, like I was saying earlier, a sense of like huge overwhelm. I was like, wow, this is a massive movement. I want to do something and I don't know yet what to do. I need to put my head down and educate myself on this. And I started taking a couple webinars and I was almost like, like not laughing at myself, but like bummed out at myself. Like, wow, you studied black history and you don't really know what to do with this one. Because I think that it's just, um, never in my study of black history, was there a link drawn to, and by the way, these facts translate into this now there wasn't that. Oh, I see. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I kind of felt like, yeah, I know slavery happened. Yeah. I know about Tulsa and the, you know, um, Mm -hmm. the attack there. Like, I don't really, know how to. And so I felt this pressure, um, as a white woman and an entrepreneur with a platform to do something. And I, and I'm still sitting with beyond looking at my podcast feed or my Instagram or anywhere that I have power speaking on a stage, whatever I, I've been looking at it saying, okay, can I look at it and make sure that my podcast feed looks like the world I walk around in? you know, Mm -hmm. um, like I cringe at the thought that my black lives matter episode is where I'm like really representing black lives, you know, like it's insane. And so I'm, I'm looking at that and taking responsibility for it. But I also noticed there was like a lot of, um, shaming and a lot of blaming. And it, it felt for me like, well, yeah, this is a, this is a really important movement and I get how frustrating it must be. And, and I'm aware that for a population to get in the street and and protest at the level that these protests were, they need to be seriously marginalized to be, to be triggered to do that. And my question for you is like, what, what do you think through as someone who studied history, as somebody who understands this movement as a concept, but also the numbers and the history behind it. What is your take on what someone like me or any everyday white girl, you know, someone who's not black, what can they do to contribute to a better world as it relates to, um, being anti-racist and making a difference? Well, I think that all the stuff that you're doing is just fabulous. I mean, I think you, we all have to, I have to learn all the time. I never stop 
trying to learn new things uh, about people. I mean, I think I, I envy the fact that you know so much about the Middle East because I'm learning a lot about that now. And, you know, I've, I've always tried to, to keep up with the narratives from all different perspectives um, about what's going on in the world, but particularly in our own society. So I think everyone taking, you know, a few um, minutes of the day or, you know, uh, uh, you know, do a reading or, you know, or something like that, that will make them more aware of various people's perspectives. I think that that's first and foremost, because what happens is that we, as you were talking about your cartoon, for example, we get socialized into our beliefs about other people and about our society um, very young. And so, and then that just becomes foundational to us, it becomes the way in which we see the world for the rest of our lives until, unless we make, you know, a really, a, a real effort to see it through the eyes of other people too. Um, and so we have to, I think, be aware of that. There's just so much that happens that we take for granted is happening because it's right. Yeah. You know? Because we're socialized to think that, okay, there's law and order and people have rules and they're following the rules and that's the way our society works. And so, but so when people protest and say, no, it's not working correctly, then people are really struck by that and say, what do you mean? You know, because our entire lives we've been told that it does work correctly and that the U.S. is the best country in the world and that, you know, where you have, you know, discrimination and um, fascism, et cetera, et cetera, and other places, we don't have it here. And so it's very hard to, to think otherwise. Um, well, what was that person doing? We always ask, were they in the wrong place? What, you know, why were they, et cetera. So I think, you know, learning more uh, as much as we can about our society and how it operates is, is absolutely key. And I think in doing that, we correct our own uh, microaggressions or aggressions. You know, um, I think everybody should take responsibility for themselves. And mm-hmm. um, if you want to protest, then protest. If you want to do it another kind of way, then do it another kind of way. But we have to feel at the end that we try to make our society better. We, we try to be, you know, respons- responsible citizens of the United States of America. And that means knowing as much as we can possibly about our laws, about, you know, the, our systems um, and about the people within the country and their experiences as we possibly can. And so, you know, I don't necessarily tell people to go out and do this or to go out and do that or it's just, you know, but I do ask people because I'm an educator, of course, to become as, you know, um, knowing as possible. Um, There's so much available to us on, um, you know, electronically on the Internet. And I know some of it can be, you know, very skewed in one direction or the other direction, but we got to you know, kind of poke around in different formats and um, different, um, you know, genres and stuff to see what people are saying. I really find that documentaries are helpful. You know, um, I really find that even though they can also have bias in them, particularly the older ones, but looking at documentaries, I think are a helpful way of people understanding what's going on, like looking at Eyes on the Prize or 13th or, you know, um, that gives you a great sense. I, I think more than, you know, looking at a, a scripted show or a non-scripted show, <laughs> you know, I think yeah. uh, all of that. So, um, but the other thing too, is that everything we see, we should question. 
You know, yeah. we have to be questioning. We have to be intelligent. We have to say, well, that doesn't sound right to me. And then follow up on that. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, I also, I remember growing up in the affirmative action program, like in my kid brain, <laughs> I remember being applying for colleges thinking, wait, like if you're a different color, you get a better shot or like yeah, they're nicer for your application. That way. Yeah. Yeah. But I also, I'm starting to understand that, um, there's been kind of mixed feedback I've gotten around, like the system literally needs to have those openings, you know? Um, and I, I'm curious, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, because it sounds like the system is flawed. And for me as like a white woman, who's an entrepreneur, I'm just like, okay, how do I be a part of the solution? Maybe it looks like if I can't, you know, attend a a speech that I'm invited to give, I think more strategically, like, is there a woman of color that does what I do that I can support with this and recommend? Like, is it, is it that level of, um, lifting where it's like, um, being that strategic, like, do you have any feedback around systems like that? Well, I think that people have always, you know, been really, really scared of affirmative action, um, because it sounds like someone's getting something who's not as good as the other person and that somebody's getting cheated out of it. But again, I want to go back to your statistics, which 12% of the population, all right, affirmative action was applied to the entire U.S. population. And the majority of people who benefited from affirmative action were women, uh, women of every color, um, because women were in the 1960s ex- as excluded almost, not as much, but almost as excluded as African Americans were, and indigenous people, and Asian Americans. And, you know, and so, um, so. All groups of people benefited from affirmative action because they benefited 50% of that group's population, which was female. Um, secondly, I would say that uh, one of the things I think has, that has been lost is that affirmative action was a plan um, that was first mentioned by you know John F. Kennedy, but was taken up by every Republican president until George W. Bush. Okay. And so it was something that people, even in the Republican Party, uh, found to be necessary and found to be minimally uh, uh, something that could be done to address the wrongs of, oh, not just against African Americans, but also against women. Uh, Thirdly, is that, you know, everyone who was admitted, uh, most people who were admitted to college during my generation or the two or three, two generations after me were all coded as being affirmative action. Yeah, I was valedictorian of my high school. Okay. Um, I was, uh, I did extremely well at the University of Virginia. I was, went into a master's program at Yale and, um, and I got all honors. Um, and so, um, I had all honors at Yale as a PhD student, which is is the highest, uh, that's the highest grade. It's the A. Uh, but people will still say that I was an affirmative action person. I was still hired for an affirmative action program at UCLA. Although, who was going to be better than I was? Who had more, you know, I had a Yale PhD, all honors, and you're telling me that I need to come to the affirmative action. So people really use affirmative action, that is, universities use it in particular kinds of ways to get a certain population, but also to save spaces for 
European American population. If I was hired, they could hire another European American uh, person because I had come in through the quote unquote affirmative action slot. So, I mean, so I think people don't really understand how affirmative action worked. Uh, yeah. In the past, I mean, there were certainly some, lo- certainly a lot of losses, uh, but mostly because people began to say uh, to just think of black people as well. If we don't have affirmative action, then we don't need to let black people in, or we don't need to let Latinx people in, or we don't have need to have women in this position, a woman in this position um, anymore. And so, um, you know, as a CEO or as a vice president or as anything, so um, I think there's. Again, in this country, there's this notion that everything's equal and that merit should went out. But merit rarely ever won out um, before affirmative action or after affirmative action. <laughs> so, you know, the system's always twisted in some ways. Um, you know, for example... Um, uh, when at the end of the 19th century, going into the 20th century, the people who were most excluded from higher education, other than indigenous people and African Americans, were Jewish American, were Jewish people. You know, and there was this huge um, quota system that was put in place um, for for Jewish people who were applying to colleges, research one universities, and to uh, graduate schools and professional schools. Was that based on merit? No, it was not. You know, so it's just so, you know, there was a long kind of tricky history about this notion of affirmative action and who gets placed where and all that kind of stuff. Oh, well, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me. Um, Where can everybody find you if they want to learn more? Or I I guess when UCLA kicks back into their classes, do you ever teach any classes that are um, outside, like an extension or anything like that that's accessible for people in LA? Well, I give a lot of lectures and I have a lot of lectures that are online too. So, um, you know, they can Google me. They can go through my website, um, drbrendaestevenson.com because I have uh, all my lectures and things are located on that particular website wonderful i'll put it in the show notes thank you again you're certainly welcome Hello, U-Turn friends. I am so excited to be continuing this series of guest experts around Black Lives Matter. I feel so connected to how important this cause is, and I think it's so much more than a cause. It's a mindset. And I wanted to bring Janet Stavall onto the podcast. Um, She is the manager of executive communications for UPS, so she literally is the primary speechwriter for their CEO, for their senior leadership. And we were just talking, and it seems like she might be one of the few, if not the only executive speechwriter of color in the Fortune 500. And uh, she is really adept at developing diversity and inclusion messages. And I want to make sure you know that those are two very separate things. We're going to talk about diversity, inclusion, what are they? She's a really popular speaker, workshop facilitator, um, and she also champions pragmatic diversity, which is a really frank business approach that tackles head-on systemic racism. Her TED Talk has millions of views at this point, challenging businesses to get serious about diversity and inclusion. Um, And I'm just really excited to start asking her about how we can create more inclusion and diversity in our workplace, what it's really going to take. And before she joined UPS, she had, and she served as the principal of the Point Communications, which is a marketing communications PR consulting firm. For more than two decades, she developed, she implemented, she managed marketing strategies for executive positioning projects for leading U.S. companies. 
Her work's been published everywhere. You guys get the mood, the mood here. Um, so excited, Janet, to have you. Thank you for making the time. I am so excited to be here, Ashley. I am looking forward to this conversation. I feel like there's such a gift in a speechwriter having a sense of humor and a sense of levity. Um, I don't know. We didn't really get to talking before this, Janet, but I was work. I used to work in national security in the government, mm-hmm. and um, I, I've written a couple speeches for politicians and stuff like that. But it's it's just so interesting to me because I feel like the heavier the line of work, the more humor there is. Like I used to go to FBI trainings, and they'd be like, "What's the flavor of the day, guys? Like neo-Nazi extremists? Like what are we feeling today?" It's like. You just kind of create a levity because things can feel so much. I'm curious, as somebody who is a writer and a feeler, how are you feeling in 2020? And um, how are you holding the events of this year? This has been, um, uh, is 2020 ever going to end? Um, <laughs> you know, it. I always tell people that being a Black woman in America is exhausting. And that's before 2020. In 2020, it is debilitating some days. I mean, there is all the stuff that's just going on. And then, you know, Chadwick Boseman dies. We just cannot get a break this year. Um, I am really looking forward to, I won't say I'm looking forward to 2021 because, you know, it could be worse, but I hope not. So it's, it's hard. And to be doing this work right now is hard because for me and for, I think, I can speak for a lot of black people. Being black is hard, like I said, on a good day. Being black right now is really hard. And you still have to show up like nothing's going on. And Mm -hmm. it absolutely is. So on the one hand, you kind of have this split loyalty where we realize that we're in a moment that could become a movement. And if anybody is going to have a conversation, they need to have it with the people who live the experience. But at the same time, you're tired. You don't want to talk about it. You don't want to be that person. And so you just kind of have to drag yourself up every day and and, and do it. And I don't I don't I don't fault anybody who says I just can't do this. Yeah, I hear that. And I I find that there's probably some judgment if you're like, it's hard to be black in America or something like that. I can see that people might not get it if they're not in your shoes. Um, And what would you say are the primary reasons that it feels challenging on an ongoing basis for you, even beyond 2020? Like, what are a few things that you feel like the black community is facing in their life and in the workplace that it would create that level of tiredness and collective exhaustion? Well, there's a basic misconception and a basic lack of understanding of history that pervades, uh, especially uh, American culture. The belief that inequity or the evidence of inequity, which is the huge divide economically, um, professionally, between, I'm not even going to say people of color, I'm going to specifically say black people and everybody else in the workplace, If you pay attention to what you can see and ignore what you could potentially dig in to learn, you could probably get the impression that the reason that divide exists is a moral failing of Black people. If you don't know what systemic racism is, and if you don't know the difference between systemic racism and systematic racism, which most people don't. Yeah, let's learn. Okay, well, systematic racism is the racism you can see. That was Jim Crow laws, which said that black people couldn't drink from the same water fountain and couldn't vote and couldn't do a, couldn't sit in the front of a bus. That's systematic racism. It's in the system. 
It's visible. You can see. They write it down. Everybody knows what the rules are. We don't really have that anymore. That stuff got outlawed. So there are a lot of people who believe that because systematic racism doesn't exist, there's no such thing as systemic racism. Systemic racism is the rot at the root. It is the things that are baked in, built in, that you cannot see. Things, for example, that have foundations in systematic racism, but have dug in, entrenched themselves, and now they're still there. So when people say to black people, why don't you just get over it? You know, slavery was done. Like, yeah, okay, maybe. First of all, if you factor in history and um, Jim Crow laws and the criminal lease system, slavery, by, by those terms, probably hadn't been over but about 50 years. So let's get real about that. It just got it just got over. It wasn't in the 1800s and it ended. But that notwithstanding, it's that systemic racism, those things that are baked in and built in that are the very foundation of the world we live in that create the bias. Those things are there and they're not going away. So when you see these disparities, if you believe that the reason they exist is because of moral failing of somebody, you don't have any real sense of the fact that no, the game is rigged. And that's not a conspiracy theory. The game is rigged. Equity requires you doing some work. Equity requires somebody giving something up. And I used to, when I first started in this work, I see one of those people who would say, you know, the problem is you, you don't want to do this because you believe that diversity is a zero sum game and it's not. Diversity and inclusion are a zero sum game and they're not. Equity is a zero sum game. At the end of the day, somebody has to give something up. And the reason that has to happen is because somebody, somebody's are benefiting from somebody else who's had to give something up for, for the for the duration, for the rest of all their lives. You got to change that balance. Now, the positive side of that is, and this is where diversity and inclusion are exciting, is that if you only have two things and only two spots, for example, in a company, and you're going to give and you're going to give one of them to somebody of color because you want to try to create equity. That means somebody who's not of color is not going to get that spot. I know that you have we talked about five steps to support people in the workplace. Can you give us kind of a snapshot on what you see happening in corporate right now? I know that this is such a weird time where corporate kind of just dissolved in some ways. What are some statistics or pieces of data that you find interesting that paint the picture of what's going on with diversity inclusion in the workplace? Okay. For one thing, you know, we talk about diversity and, and, and I use that term because that is a term we use. I'm not a fan of the word. I'm not. And the reason is because the, the, the term diversity um, came about right about the time when the issue of race became an issue. You know, we had the Civil Rights Act that said basically you can't discriminate on the basis of race. And this we're talking, you know, about business right now. You couldn't discriminate. You had to hire people. All of a sudden, it didn't take, it wasn't too long after that that we started talking about diversity. And the reality is, is that the people who have benefited the most from affirmative action are not black people, but white women. And that's why what you have now in corporate America is, um, People who are in the professional arena, sort of the, the white collar world, 40% of those people are white women. Only 5% are racial minorities. So all diversity is not created equal. And when we start talking about things like, you know, diversity of thought, I just, my eyes just cross because the reality is, is, you know what, if you get diversity of race, 
and even diversity of gender, you will get diversity of thought. So I don't want to hear that. I mean, there are, I don't know what the number is now, but there are several Fortune 500 um, CEOs who are women. There's three or four who are black. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you talked about like the first step and I found it really interesting. It just kind of going towards anti-racism and having more, I, I guess, for lack of a better term, diversity in the workplace. Um, and you said it was banish your own bias. Um, and I, I find that to be so interesting because I think like, damn, the reason we have biases is because we don't see them always. You know what I mean? Right. Um, how can we banish our own bias or how do you suggest people start to reflect on that and bring that into the corporate world? Well, the reality is, I mean, bias does not mean that you are a bad person. It means simply that you are actually a person because bias is something that's natural. I mean, it's, we make decisions and we have to, as biological beings, as human beings, we have to be able to kind of sort through all the things that we encounter. So it is our nature to look at things and to buy decisions and, and do that. So bias is human. The question is, once unconscious bias, once you know you have it, um, the question is, what are you going to do about it? Are you, are you content to just go, okay, yeah, I'm just going to hold on to that? I mean, you got like 11 million pieces of information that go through your brain every minute, but you're aware of about 40 of them. So, and you only use about 2% of your emotional cognition that's available to you consciously. So, when somebody says you have unconscious bias, one way of looking at it is to go, well, I have unconscious bias. But see, you're, you're, you, you don't get off the hook that easily because once somebody tells you, then you're suddenly conscious of it. What you do about it then is a choice. And it's not easy to do anything about it because you've been inundated with messages. And Lord knows we're getting more of those messages now. And, we, and, we, and people have platforms for them that are much higher now. You get hit in that part of your brain that's unconscious with these messages and you act automatically. The only way to stop that is to is to intentionally examine those things. Ask yourself the question every time you look at somebody and have an opinion about somebody. Um, you have to ask yourself, all right, is that opinion based in any way on something that they've done? In fact, is that opinion based on anything that anybody I know who looks like this has done, or is this based? Is this coming from somewhere else? And that's nice. And, and, and now now so many companies are putting unconscious bias training in place. The reason it doesn't work a lot of times is because what you're telling people is you have a problem that you need to fix. So I think, and, and that's true, but I think that the reason unconscious bias training, the actual term that people use, it doesn't work as well is because if you do it one time and you point the finger and say, no, you're wrong and you need to fix this, people don't respond really well to that. So interpersonally, you got to banish your bias, but institutionally, you put policies in place to make sure that bias does not go unchecked. When you think about programs for this, would it be like e-learning? Like I'm trying to ground it in like how it would look in the workplace. What would you expect would be productive or effective? It doesn't work as well online. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it, quite honestly, is the kind of training that works better if you can be immersed in it. The best programs I've seen over the years are programs where you take small cohorts of people and you literally immerse them in a training exercise for a couple of hours, a couple of days. You know, it just depends on what your appetite is for change. I mean, Jane Elliott did that famous brown eyes, blue eyes experiment back in the 50s, in the, um, 60s. And what she did was I think most, most people are familiar with it, but if you're not, she basically told the blue-eyed kids one day, you're superior, 
and turned them loose. And these were like third, fourth graders, turned them loose. And they were terrible because they had the um, upper level, the upper position, and they did what people in power do. And then the next day she flipped them on it and said, nope, now you're, you're the lower caste. You're not the higher caste. You're not in charge anymore. And watch their behaviors. So it's the same thing without such obvious disparity. But most companies that have made some sort of commitment to equity and justice are putting unconscious bias training in place. And my advice is take it. I love this. And I, I, I only can imagine how many biases we act, we hold, and this is just one area. So I would imagine that a training that exposes to you how you're holding bias could be helpful in all areas of your life. It should um, be. Yeah. And, and I know another point you made was just understanding the difference between diversity and inclusion. And I love that you showed the distinction between systemic and systematic. And so I think these little nuances are what makes such a huge difference for people's ability to understand racism. What is the difference in your opinion with diversity versus inclusion? Okay. I think that, um, I always say there's usually, you know, we talk about diversity inclusion, the sort of abbreviation for it is D and I, and there's a reason that there's an ampersand between the D and the I. Diversity and inclusion are not the same things. Diversity is something that you have. Inclusion is something that you have to do. Diversity is really just a numbers game, but inclusion is about impact. Diversity is a fact. Our demographics are changing. Unless you actively choose to not be diverse, you are. It's a fact. But inclusion is a choice. What would be your response to people who are kind of like looking at minorities in general in the way that I am and thinking to themselves like, wow, this is a lot. Like there's so many different minorities that have not been included in the workplace in the way that they need to be. Um, how do you juggle that responsibility or what would you say? Because I know that you said in your TED talk, you're very single-minded, which I thought was hilarious. You were talking about how you always bring, like, if somebody cracks a joke, you'll always bring it black, back to being black or something. Oh, yeah. Really, always. People, I love, people that love that. me or hate me in conversations, but they oh, certainly are not surprised. <laughs> Well, how do you, as, as somebody who's single-minded about Black lives and um, anti-racism, and, and how do you suggest that your everyday white advantaged person holds all of the minorities and the Black Lives Matter movement? What are some things that you would say we should think about throughout our workday to be more inclusive overall? Okay, first of all, the one thing you don't want to do is you do not want to say that I'm colorblind. Okay, first of all, that's a lie. You're not unless you are physically blind, maybe. And even then you aren't because there are nuances that accrue to color and race, which is a, itself a made up category. I mean, let's be real about that. Race is, race was the most effective um, social experiment ever created. The Human Genome Pro Project proved years ago that there's no such thing as race, that I have as much in common with you um, genetically as I might with my black next door neighbor to go. So to go full circle to what you're saying is the first thing you got is you got to see color. People who tell me you're colorblind and look at them and go, you're lying. You, you, you cannot be. And the other thing, and it's insulting to people of color to be told that you're colorblind because what the things that you choose to be blind to are the things that you choose not to see. What I wish we could be is color brave. I wish we could say, yes, I not only see color, I see that there's value in that color. I see that there are things that accrue with that color that are important and wonderful and great interpersonally, 
institutionally, we can stop this stuff about diversity in general and talk about things like color in particular. We can have differentiated diversity because the value that I bring as a black person to whatever problem you're trying to solve is different than the value that I would bring as a Latino person. I, it's totally different as a person from um, from an, an indigenous indigenous personality. I bring different a different set of value. If you don't see that color, and like I said, let's not argue whether color is something you should deal with, but it is what we deal with. If you don't see that difference, then there's no way you're ever going to leverage it. So if you talk about diversity in general, you're telling me the same thing that somebody does on an interpersonal level. I'm colorblind, and that's not helpful for anybody. And it's hurtful on a one-on-one on -on -one level. So I think the first thing you got to do is you got to see color. And then you have to be able to talk about it. You have to talk about race. You have to talk about difference. And the way you talk about it is you start by asking. And like I said earlier, you got to be careful sometimes now because people are hurting. And it's not easy to ask the question. It just isn't. But you have to. And then once you ask, you have to absorb the answer. Um, you have to really, really listen. And then you have to accept. Note, I did not say acknowledge. I said accept. Accept means understanding that beliefs are beliefs. They are not truths. And so just because you believe something or just because you even have accepted something as a truth, it does not mean that it's universal. So you have to hear somebody else's lived experience and understand that you don't really get it. No, you don't know. And once you get to that point, you have to be willing to adjust you have to adjust what you believe to be true and embrace somebody else's truth. Then and only then are you in a position to articulate somebody else's story. Because you know what? Black people in the room talking to each other about what's wrong is not moving the needle. We need white people in the room talking about what's wrong to other white people in the in, in, in telling the stories and trying to relay the lived experiences of black people. Because that's who's going to get listened to. That's what allyship is. It means being in this work all the time. It means not being not racist. It means being anti-racist. And that's a completely different thing. There are uh, quite a few scholars out there talking about it, but one of the best um, definitions I've seen is by an author who said, anti-racism is a commitment to fight racism wherever you find it, including in yourself. Mm. anti-racism is active it is not passive and you know going and throwing bricks through buildings because you say you believe in black lives matter that's not anti-racism that's thuggery and that's not helping anybody when you are anti-racist you have a shared fight and that's a little bit it's a different kind of energy altogether. Yeah, I love what you're sharing here. And um, I, I love the distinction, you know, like, I was thinking a lot about that during the protests. It's like the protesters protest and the looters loot and some of the biggest changes in our history have come from protesting. So anybody who thinks it doesn't work, it's like, I studied history, and it definitely does. Um and, and you talk about, so here's a few steps just for my note takers. You said banish your own bias, whether that's like corporate training or something like that. Understand the difference between diversity and inclusion. You must actually see color. I love this one because this is where I was missing the mark prior to the Black Lives Matter movement. I bought into the belief that if I don't acknowledge it at all, I'm seeing it as equal. And I love this suggestion because I think you're, I just never thought about it that way before all of this, where I was like, I have to see this color so that I can do something about it. Exactly. Um, which is so powerful. 
you have to consciously decide in the world now that you don't want to see this stuff. And and this brings me into this idea of being an actual, like you said, try to be an ally. What do you think of when you think of somebody who is an ally? Somebody who is willing to bang their head against that wall. Somebody who is willing to listen. Somebody who is willing to say, I don't have all the answers, but what I do have is a very clear-eyed vision of the inequity that exists. And what I do have is more power in this system. You have to recognize that if you are born white and male and cisgender in this country, you are part of a racist society. You are benefiting from racism. You just wake up and the world is shaped for you. So you can't do anything about that. And it's no need getting an attitude and getting hurt and getting offended when somebody says you're a racist. But what you can do is embrace that and say, yeah, I live in a racist society from which I benefit. I benefit at the, um, I benefit at the expense of somebody else that, that comes to me just because I was born with the right, like, like with the lucky sperm club. That's what I was born into. Yeah. And this brings me to, to your final point, point number five of truly be anti-racist. Um, I don't know, like, I feel like this is vulnerable to say, but like, I kind of struggle as a business owner. Like for example, I have Instagram and I usually post on there for fun. Like I have a very light relationship with the entire platform and I'm not very businessized about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I see a lot of my friends who are stepping into allyship and they're posting about it almost every single day. Yeah. Uh, um, where, where is the line of showing up versus forgetting the cause? Like, I know that you can't necessarily say like speaking about it every day on your business platform is the way to do it. But where do you see somebody healthily integrating this into their life so that they are a part of the solution and they're not single-minded, which God knows I really appreciate you being single-minded. We need you. Um, But I know your everyday white girl isn't going to completely be single-minded about this. There's many different things on her mind. Um, How would you see it being healthily integrated into their life? You said, say something when you hear it, something, what else would be a suggestion? get some black friends. I mean, I, I wonder how many people who call themselves allies really don't have any people of color who are true friends, who yeah. they truly talk to on a regular basis. Because a lot of, and I don't mean just talk at, I don't mean talk around, I don't mean even talk, speak for, but speak to. And, and, that, and part of that is sit down and listen. Sit your butt in a seat and have a conversation and get challenged and don't argue, but listen and try to learn. Ask valuable questions and you got to pick the friends that you can do this with. I mean, but you got to have some people around you. So I ask, I ask most white people, how many black friends do you really have? And it's understandable that you wouldn't because like I said, systemic racism means that we are very divided. If you are a churchgoer and you go to church, nine times out of 10, your church is predominantly whatever you are. If you go to school, Nine times out of 10, you're segregated in classes. Schools are more segregated now than they were um, before Brown versus Board of Education. And private schools always have been. Public schools are now segregated again. So you go to school, you're with people who look like you. You go to church, you're people who look like you. You go home, unless you've got, you know, United Colors of Benetton family, you got people who look like you. So you're going to have to intentionally diversify your circle. I also understand, also don't expect that, like you said, the the white girl who posts on Instagram is going to be single-minded because she got white girl issues. I got black girl issues. I just don't see Becky and Rebecca and all these like white girls just like 
full-time posting. So I'm like, how do we integrate this in a respectable, important, responsible way? You, well, the thing is, is it, it will it will take care of itself. If you have those difficult conversations and you have a platform, unless you choose to not use your platform, you'll get some, you'll, you'll, you'll have, you'll be able to create conversations to, to ignite discussions, to be an influencer in a way that makes sense. Mm, thank you again for being here. Where can everybody continue to follow you or learn from you? I'm definitely on LinkedIn, Janet Stovall. You can find me there. Um, I have a Facebook page out there, Pragmatic Diversity, because I am a diversity pragmatist. I'm out there. Um, you'll, you'll see, I show up on Twitter. Um, you'll find me there, that kind of place. I don't even remember all my handles, but, um, I'm easy to find. I go by my name, Janet Stovall. And so if you just Google me, you'll find me. I'm out there. Thank you again. You're welcome. Thank you. I appreciate this. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the U-Turn Podcast. If any of our guests mention any resource that you're interested in, you can head on over to ashleystall.com and press the podcast tab to see any show notes. It's A-S-H-L-E-Y-S-T-A-H-L.com. On that page, you're also going to see our brand new free quiz, helping you discover which career path you're actually meant for. It's followed by tons of content-packed emails about your personality in the work force. And of course, we just can't thank you enough for your written reviews. These reviews mean a lot for our show to keep getting out there. So if you ever send me a DM on the gram, and I'm so grateful that you have, I would love it if you would copy and paste that into the podcast app of your smartphone as a written review. It would mean so much for us over here at the show. Thanks again for being here, and I can't wait to connect with you next week.